Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. It is Monday morning, October the 2nd, 843-661-0937. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. So is there a month of transition more dramatic than September to October? In the afternoon, when the clock goes from 359 to 4, I mean, it feels like it moved more than a minute. I mean, I understand it didn't. 259 to 3, eh. 159 to 2, eh. But 359 turns into 4, and it's, I don't know, there, there's just a big, uh, September to October, to me, is that month of the year. Um, September, is that fall or summer? Yeah. 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 Some of some of both. Yeah. But when that when that calendar turns to October, it's summer in the rear view. Yep. And we're we're obviously in I fall of the year. Saying. Weather begins to change a bit. Um MLB regular season ends. Yeah, and the playoffs, the major league baseball world series and playoffs and a championship start. Get a little chill in the air. Um there will be a frost in the month of October some at some point in time. Um I mean I'm not saying I think it's gonna be eighty three today and eighty two tomorrow, but but just the, the flipping of the month from September to October is a dramatic um, dramatic change. You really feel like you're in football season now. I mean, I've always argued they should start football three weeks later than they do. I mean, go back to the beginning of football season, Labor Day weekend. I mean, it's 100 degrees, man. Mm-hmm. I mean, it feels like it's 120 degrees, um, and it still feels like summer. But we get to um, to October, and the, your, your Gamecocks didn't have quite the, um, the September they were anticipating, Rev. That's true. Okay. Yeah. Record's not that great. You care to tell me your sunshine pumper you? What's um what's happening? What's going on? Well, I think that uh, to, to your earlier point, you know, this weekend the get, tra- get in the weeds. I, I want to hear you get in the weeds oh, no. a bit about the game Saturday against the Volunteers. <laughs> and I can't because I don't watch football like you watch football. But I was going to say to your earlier point about you know the first weekend, the transition from September to October. It's a great football weekend. I mean, Saturday was just it was a good day. Just because there's a lot of football on, there's stuff to do. You kind of build a day around it, especially if your team is playing in yeah, the evening. If your tire sucked, if you're a game cut, right? <laughs> so, so then that's why I didn't say it was a great day because then when you kind of build the hype and spend the day watching the other games that are of interest, and then watch your team get their butt kicked all over the field in Tennessee. Did you expect your team to not get their butt kicked all over the field at Tennessee? No, I went in expecting a closer game. No, no, I wasn't expecting us to lose. Okay. Um, I had some hope because I thought at the beginning of the game, just as far as the score went and the fact that we were we were staying with them, it was in reach, uh, that there was a possibility. And, well, I mean, we caught all the breaks. Fake punt, interception. We'll take them. Um, I mean, you're right because it'll, it'll turn. Count. I mean, it'll, it'll turn. I mean, you'll, you'll go a game. Um, I'll give you an example. Against Florida State, Clemson could catch a break. They caught a lot of breaks against Syracuse. I mean, they're a better team than Syracuse, but they couldn't catch a break against Florida State. And a week later, they seemingly caught a lot of the breaks. That's just the um, what do we say? The football gods. Um, it's just the it's it's the reason the ball ain't round, right? Football bounces funny. It's a it's a funny game. It's not as finicky as baseball, but it is a funny sort sort of game. I saw a, an interesting statistic. They extrapolated 162 game season in college football in the NFL. What if Alabama had played 162 game season? What if um, this Kansas City Chiefs had played 162 game season. It's kind of an interesting. Uh, their their record would be 132 and 30 or something <laughs> crazy like that. You know, it was just kind of a um, once again an extrapolation of um. We talk about the long and and grind of a of a major league baseball regular season, and it doesn't matter. Um, I've already read a couple of reports now that say um some of the you ready? 
some of the metrics. So, so some of the um some of the analytics say that Philadelphia, the Phillies are probably more likely to win the National League than the Braves because of some of the short state the pitch map. I mean, just just mm-hmm. some 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 advantages Philadelphia has in short series that they would not have over over the long haul. Um, I just don't think teams are rewarded enough for being regular season champion. I, I just think there has to be some uh, more proportional way to reward someone for winning their division by 13, 14, 15, um, 16 games. Back to your game, Cox. Mm-hmm. Um, here's Let's what concerns me. I watched every play of the Clemson game. I'm going to actually had a whole Saturday by myself. Me, some diet Pepsi, some <laughs> chips, some um, some lemon cheesecake. Um, <laughs> and I just, I mean, I didn't bother anybody. Nobody bothered me. I watched a million plays. I watched 20 football games, watched every play of the Clemson game. Um, I mean, it kind of went like I expected it to go. Syracuse turned the ball over. Clemson capitalizes on that turnover. Their talent was kind of, and, and then Syracuse made some mistakes early, but, um, but Clemson took care of business. They, um, their, their, their quarterback made a couple of mistakes early and he got away with it. Um, I mean, there's a better team. Clemson's not elite, but they, they're not far from it. I mean, they've still got a lot of good players and a lot of good positions. Um, and there's not a dominant team this year in college football, Georgia at Auburn proved to me that Georgia's not dominant. They're good. They're really good. And they've got a lot of really good players at every position, but they're not dominant. I mean, you don't watch that team and say, wow, I mean, how do you beat them? That's the way you felt about Alabama and Clemson for a couple of years there. How do you beat that crowd? There are no weaknesses. Well, Clemson's got some weaknesses, but by and large, they've got top 15 talent. I mean, I don't know if it's top 10 because I don't know if I know enough about evaluating the college talent to know whether they've got, they've got, a, they've got, they've got better players than South Carolina. And significantly, well, it depends on what you call significant, but I mean, they've got better players up and down their roster um, than South Carolina. Uh, the reason the Gamecocks can be a threat is Spencer Rattler. I mean, if you give their quarterback time to throw the ball, I mean, he can make throws and, and they've got a receiver or two that can in space make some plays. So that makes the Gamecocks potentially dangerous. I mean, Clemson can win the majority of their games on talent. They're, they're going to have better talent than anybody. Jason Priester was here Friday. We talked other than Florida State, but they're not going to play a team with as much talent as they do. Doesn't mean they're not going to win them all because they're kids and they have a Saturday that they just don't feel like playing and the ball doesn't bounce their way. Um, when they had Watson and Trevor Lawrence, they were so superior. They could bring their B-minus game and beat anybody in their league. Now they bring their B-minus game against North Carolina, Florida State. Um, uh, maybe that's it. That's probably it. Maybe I'm leaving somebody out here. But, I mean, they can they can lose. I mean, Duke, there you go. Duke is a team that they didn't bring their best game, and Duke was ready to play. And, um, you know, Clemson just cannot overwhelm them with um, superior athleticism. But but I want to go to the Gamecocks because that's, uh, that's the team. Jason Priester can explain this Friday better than I can about what happened in Syracuse and what will happen. I think Clemson hosts Wake Forest this weekend while the Gamecocks have the Saturday off. Um, Shane Beamer is as charismatic, likable, energetic, hardworking a football coach as South Carolina has ever hired. Let me say that again. He is as energetic, likable, charismatic, hardworking as anybody they've ever hired. But he's never been a head football coach. And, and I think Shane's got to make this adjustment. And I'm not, I'm not calling names. 
Um, but but I'm not going to pump sunshine. I'm, I'm just not going to do that. Um, I watched a left tackle, a true freshman left tackle, struggle with an all-SEC pass rusher all night long, and they never gave him help. They never gave him help. I remember a Chad Morris offense in Clemson one night when Jadavion Clowney just wreaked havoc. I mean, he just blew half their plays up before they could get them off. Um, during that five-game winning streak the Gamecocks had, it was one game in Clemson, and I was texting with a guy that played at Clemson. I mean, he's a good friend of ours, Thomas Hunter, played at Clemson. And I said, Thomas, you can't block him with one. But Chad Morris was hell-bent on running his offense the way he wanted to run his offense, and he left a tight end on Clowney, and Clowney blew every play up. I mean, I think he had five sacks, four and a half sacks, and when he didn't sack, the quarterback's running for his life. You know, he's in hot pursuit of the uh, the quarterback, and he just, I mean, they couldn't get plays off. And I kept thinking to myself, well, if they're going to try to block Clowney with one tight end, I mean, a tight end, a, kind of a hybrid pass catcher slash blocker, and, and no, this isn't going to work. I mean, this <laughs> he'll be in the backfield every play that they try to, to throw the ball. South Carolina has a, a highly recruited offensive lineman that they've inserted at left tackle, but he's a true freshman. And on the road, you let him struggle play after play after play after play after play against an all-SCC defensive end who is an elite pass rusher. And they never gave him help. And I'm thinking to myself, wow. I mean, I, I just put a put a H back over there. Put a tight end over there. If you could Chip see it sitting somebody. on your couch, well, I mean, why he, didn't they see it Anybody sees that. I mean, anybody sees a true freshman offensive tackle in Neyland Stadium against an elite defensive end he can't block him. And at some point in time, you got to say, hey, my guy can't block that guy, so let's give him help. And let, let's let's roll Spencer out a little bit. Let's do something. Here's my complaint and criticism. And it is, you know, it is criticism. We've got a D.C. and an O.C. that have one-year combined coordinating experience between them. Now, they, they Dow Loggins may end up being a really good um, offensive coordinator. Clayton White may end up being a really good defensive coordinator. But it's hard to learn on the job in that league. There, there are far more elite players than there are elite coaches. And, and I want to go back to what I, what did I just say about Shane? He's charismatic, he's energetic, he's hardworking, and he's likable. Who does that remind you of 15 years ago? <laughs> Dabo. Yeah, and people laughed at Dabo. But what did Dabo do? Dabo admitted that he, he knew what he didn't know. Dabo knew he was not a defensive whiz or a, or a guru. He knew he was not an offensive guru. Dabo felt that he could go recruit kids, really good football players. He could convince them to come to Clemson and be a Tiger. And then he went out and hired better assistants and a better staff. Now, some of the problem with Clemson today, some of the Clemson faithful believe he's been too loyal to those who bleed orange. And the staff has slipped a bit. I mean, obviously, it was a big day when Brent Venables decided uh, to bolt and go to Oklahoma. Can't blame Venables. That's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to be the head football coach at Oklahoma. But, but I remember watching Dabo evolve and watching Dabo grow and watching Dabo, charismatic, energetic, hardworking, could recruit his rear end off, very similar to Shane Beamer. But the one thing Dabo did was go out and find elite coaches, ask the university to, to write big checks to hire really, really good coaches. I'm not saying the Gamecocks have bad coaches. I'm not suggesting that. I, I just think it's South Carolina and at Clemson, for that matter, You've got to have an elite staff. If you're going to be really good and compete for championships, you've got to have an elite staff. 
and Clemson had an elite staff. I don't think they have an elite staff today. I think they've got a pretty good staff. I don't think South Carolina has an elite staff today, but they've got a pretty good staff. But can Shane be tough and rough enough to make the changes necessary to coach the players that he has the ability to go out and recruit? And and it bothered me that I watched, I mean, I watched our safety. I mean, safeties don't need to be guarding in man coverage Tennessee's wideouts. I mean, you've got to design defenses to put players in positions that they can succeed. And we're asking a 6'4", 225-pound safety to cover, uh, uh, you know, a Tennessee wide receiver that runs the third leg on their 440 track relay team. You're asking, I mean, that's the, I mean, the kid, number 80, I, I can't think of his name, but he runs the third leg of the Tennessee 440 relay team. Um, he's probably pretty fast, wouldn't you think? <laughs> Tennessee has an elite track program, and this kid runs the third leg of their 440. I mean, he ain't Usain Bolt. But, but he's pretty close. And, and three or four times, I'm watching the game, and, and our, our strong safety, who is a really good player, but, but he's not able to cover an elite wideout in man coverage, and that goes to Josh Heupel and the Tennessee offensive staff put together a game plan that creates mismatches. That's what coordinators do. I mean, I was texting with a friend of mine who famously said to me one day, you know more about football because you played games with a helmet on. I've never played a game with a helmet on <laughs> in my life. And, um, I mean, coordinators do this, Rev, and you've heard me say this to you off the air. It's called player conflict. Can I put the player in fiscal or mental conflict? Can I put him in a place that he can't get to the play, or can I put him in a position where he's thinking about what he should or should not do? That's conflict. That's what great coordinators do. That's the only way Auburn stayed close to Georgia. Hugh Freeze is probably the best in the business at creating conflict. Your players don't, they're not sure whether they should ying or yang. Well, when you're not sure whether you can ying and yang because of the, um, you know, the, the, the offense the other team runs or the defense the other team runs, that's called a player being in constant conflict. And it seems to me, it seems to me that Saturday night was an evident example of one staff having the other staff in constant conflict. And we hardly ever had Tennessee in conflict. And that's, there are a lot more elite players than there are elite coaches. I mean, good coaches can coach elite players and win. Elite coaches can coach good players and win. Um, But when good players are being coached by good coaches, Tennessee, good players are being coached by, eh, I'll let it stay there. (laughs) You see a marked difference, and that's what my frustration is. Um, I saw our true freshman left tackle struggle all night, and nobody, nobody sent him any help. I watched our strong safety cover their 440 relay guy about three or four times in man coverage. That's putting our kids in constant conflict, and good coaches make adjustments. And I just didn't see us making any. Tennessee's the better team. I mean, They're the better team. But you've got to do certain things to give yourself a fighting chance to to win on the road. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. We're trying to comfort ourselves, us <laughs> chicken fans, True. This, um, this, uh, this Monday morning. We won't believe, I mean, we won't just go on and on and on about it. We'll we'll eventually go to shutdowns and fire alarms and, you know, Diane Feinstein and some other things I want to talk about this morning. But Rev's got it on his mind. Well, I do. 
And, you know, you and I watch so totally differently. I mean, you're in the weeds. I mean, half the stuff you just talked about, I don't even know. I just want, you know, score, you know, pass, catch, touchdown, win, yay team. That's how I watch. But, but, and I want to go back to this because I told you during the break, very few left tackles a big deal. That there's a reason that left tackles get drafted real high, the good ones, and they get paid a lot of money. I mean, that's the quarterback's blind side. Unless you're a left-handed quarterback, then the right tackle would be. But, I mean, that left tackle is a huge part of your team. Uh, Anthony Munoz. I mean, they, they, I can't think. I mean, there are a handful of those guys who, uh, and really big people can't move their hands and feet simultaneously in a coordinated fashion. I mean, a 6'5", 325, 30, 40-pound man can't do that. And when they can, <laughs> they, they get paid a lot of money to play players. football. Sure, when they, when they can move their feet and hands and in coordinated fashion at the same time, I mean, I've heard other coaches who know far more about it than I do. Um, we believe he can be a left tackle because he moves his hands and feet, and he's 325. Very few can do that, and you're asking a lot of a true freshman to stand out there on that island as left tackle and take on a an elite pass rusher, and, and Rattler's running for his life. And and I can hear the counter, well, but that's one less in your, you know, if you block him with a tight end, if you leave a tight end and double team him, that's one less in your in your pass pattern, makes it easier to defend. It does. But it keeps your quarterback from getting killed and running for his life. At least you can have a chance uh, to get a playoff. But anyway, you were going to ask about the coach. Well, I was going to ask because I did pay attention to Twitter Saturday night and Sunday. And, you know, the, of course, it's real easy for people to get on Twitter and, you know, pop off or whatever. But I have seen uh, some of the chatter starting to uh, to get out there about, well, you know, is Shane the guy? I mean, that's the question. And, you know, I I guess I'll just throw that out there for well, what mean, it's worth. You know, I, people have, you know, short, not a lot of patience sure. for things like this. And we are in a, in a building phase, right? I, well, I mean, it seems like we've been in a hundred and some odd year building always, phase. Always, always. <laughs> I could vouch for 50 years of it. I mean, I can't vouch for the first 50 years of, of building uh, from mediocrity into um, a good football program. No, I mean, I think, I mean, I, I still have confidence in Beamer. I mean, I do. I think he fits this time. I think he fits this this era. And I'm not saying he has a bad staff. He's got to evaluate. Only he knows if his coaches are good enough. Now, now I see things as someone who's played enough to be dangerous and watched enough to be dangerous. I mean, I, I see things that concern me. But I'm not a defensive coordinator at a Power 5 school. I'm not an offensive coordinator at a Power 5 school. I'm not a recruiter or an analyst or an evaluator or a scout. But, but, I, but I've watched a lot of football in my life, and I saw things Saturday night that concerned me. So, some matchups that Tennessee created, both offensively and defensively, that led me to believe their game plans were better. Our players were in a lot more places of conflict than theirs were. And to me, that's coaching. Um, you can't, I told you about, you know, there's a kid on the Gamecock roster that's big and fast. Well, in high school, he was a lot bigger and faster. He's in college because you asked why he wasn't playing as much. He's bigger and faster, but he's not much bigger and faster now. And he's got to figure out a way to, to kind of, you know, m make his space by, I mean, when you're, when you're a lot bigger and faster in high school, it's pretty easy to make your space. When you're a little bit bigger and faster in college, you, you got to figure out a, a, another way to skin the cat, so to speak, and to make, to make your spot. The two things that the Gamecocks have to understand are, to me, the two challenges moving forward. And I can't speak to Clemson. I want to talk to Jason about this Friday. I don't think people are still understanding how important NIL is. It is it. I mean, I'll say this. I'll make a recommendation. If you're a Gamecock fan or Clemson fan, I don't want to give Clemson fans 
uh, good advice. But if you're a Clemson or a Gamecock fan and you're giving Ipte money, giving the Gamecock club money, the money is better allocated in the NIL. I mean, if, if you want to win in football and you're giving X number of dollars to the Gamecock club or X number of dollars to Ipte, you're better off giving the money to the NIL. Tennessee built, I mean, the kid that was on, two of their kids that gave the Gamecocks a hard time were both transfer portal kids. I mean, they didn't come to Tennessee because they like Rocky Top. Somebody put money in a bank account for them. I mean, that's the way NIL transfer portal work. And when you look at the Gamecocks, let's go do this, this real quick, Rev, and then we'll move on. Jordan Birch is at Oregon, playing well. Uh, Jaheim Bales at Florida State, playing well. Marshawn <laughs> Lloyd is at Southern California, playing well. Um, Gilbert Edmonds is at Florida State, playing well. I mean, that, those kids would be Gamecocks this year, and they're not because other teams have taken the NIL trends, excuse me, other teams have taken the collectives a lot more seriously than South Carolina has. I mean, I've read that Tennessee has $14.5 million in the NIL. That's Texas-like. Now, they had some really, really wealthy graduate who had done exceedingly well in business, gave them a one-time lump sum to kind of get it established. But, I mean, Tennessee went out and, and shopped on the NIL market. But think about that as a Gamecock. No Jordan Birch. No Jaheim Bell. No Marshawn Lloyd. No Gilbert Edmonds. I mean, those kids were good players. Yes, difference makers. Yes, sir. I mean, it would have, would have really made a difference in, uh, on, on this team this year. But, you know, when you don't have the money and you've not established the NIL as it should have. Now, I think they're getting there. I mean, I think Garnet Trust is legitimate, and I think it'll eventually be competitive. But I, I think the Gamecocks were asleep at the switch, and you had, you know, roster depletion as a result of. I want to talk to Jason a little bit about what they did or didn't do because Dabo's been very outspoken about not liking this new world of college football. I, I sat down in a meeting. You know this, but I got involved in some of that. So I sat down in a meeting one day, and everybody of the old guard, I don't like it like this. I don't like it like this. Well, I said, if you don't like it, you'll get your ass cut. I mean, you know, if, if you walk into the room and say, well, I don't like it. I want it to be like it was. Then your Gamecocks will get their brains beat out over the next 10 years. We're not here to decide whether we like it or not. We're here deciding whether we can compete in that space or not. I mean, that train has left the, the barn. That horse has left the station. I mean, that's, you're not going to undo that. I mean, the, the, the Ed O'Bannon case was settled. NIL is here. It's real. It's active. Some teams are taking enormous advantage. Florida State has 45 players under contract. You hear me, Clemson? Florida State has 45 players under contract. They were one of the most aggressive schools in America at establishing an NIL and going out and utilizing the transfer portal. And where are they? Tell you what they did. They caught up in a hurry. I can tell you that. And Tennessee did something similar um, to that, and the Gamecocks were just behind. And, you know, they, they've got to they've got to invest heavily in NIL so they can not only keep players here that, that are, you know, and just kind of want to play for Shane, want to play at the University of South Carolina, want to play in the SEC, but but once they establish themselves as really good players, you got to have money in the bank to when, when when somebody comes calling, like Oregon or Florida State, you've got to say, hey, we, we want you to stay, and here's what we're willing to do um, for you. It's it's modified professional football, 843-661-0937. I'm going to come back, and um, one of our good listeners posted something on social media that I found interesting and intriguing, and I want to kind of play off that with a 
philosophical comment mm. or two. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. We've looked a lot for a word, and I don't know that there's a word to explain kind of where we are. I mean, we're talking about, you know, um, motion to vacate. We're talking about speaker races. It's a very volatile issue. Excuse me. It's a very volatile moment in American cultural, political, societal. I mean, it just feels like there's a powder keg behind every door. I mean, it feels like every room you walk into, there's intensity, there's political tension, there's this, I don't know, this this unspokenness about it, but you know it's there. It's a sensation. It's something. Um, I mean, Steve Bannon, I go back to Bannon. Um, you know, if you believe they're going to give your country back without a fight, you've got another thing um, coming. Well, I mean, Bannon was a bit prophetic there. One of our good listeners put something on Facebook basically suggesting something uh, similar to that. The world's always changing. I mean, there's always something wrong with the world and something right about the world. And, I mean, it, days are like that. I mean, days are microcosms of life. Good morning, bad afternoon. A good moment or two or three, bad moment two or three. So the world's ever-changing. It's never, ever static. It's never the same. But at times, we get in these periods, and, and you, you sense something. I mean, if you're trying to be aware, now if you're just, uh, you know, obliviously walking through life, and sometimes I wonder if that isn't the best way to live, just kind of don't pay any attention to anything, smoke a little weed, drink a little booze, and <laughs> just bacoli it for the rest of uh, for the rest of the 79.8 years you're given here. But for those who have a true, I don't know, a consciousness about their existence, and they really want to better understand, you know, where am I, what am I, um, who am I, Why does it, what is the world around me doing, how can I better understand it and help shape it and form it. And um, somebody put on Facebook, one of our, Good friends to the show that he suspected or felt or sensed that something is about to happen. Now, now once again, he accepted uh, that something's always about to happen. I mean, there's always a green light turning red or a red light turning turning green. But I feel that way. I mean, I you know one of one of the one of the anticipations of doing this radio show is I believe I'm hosting a radio show in a very pivotal moment in American history. And I'm not talking about, you know, 644 on a Monday morning. I'm talking about a moment in general. I mean, there's something about this time that has convinced me that we better be aware. We better be involved, better be engaged, better be uh, attentive. Um, and it, and it's, it is political, it's cultural, it's societal, that there's something out there um, that has created a, an energy. Um, and, and I, you know, I, it, where is it? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I can't touch it. I can't. I mean, I can feel it and sense it and smell it. But well, here's I can't. my question. Is it good or is it bad? But I don't know. I mean, it's an opportunity. Okay. That that would probably be, be the way I'd categorize it. It's an opportunity to make it good, make it bad. What do we do? What don't we do? Am I reading this right? Am I not reading it right? Should I should I pay closer attention? Should I let it be? I mean, I, I feel that way. But, but one of the great um, treats in my life today is being allowed to have a forum and a medium to express my opinions and listen to other people express their opinions about what I perceive to be this very pivotal moment in American history. And when, when our good, you know, good listener, and he calls into the show a lot, but when he, when he put that on Facebook, I'm like, ah, oh, okay. Cause he's kind of an observant soul and, and pays attention to prides himself in trying to pay attention. And I don't think he said, I know exactly what it is and when it's going to happen and what we better do. And I'm not saying I know exactly what it is and what it's going to happen and what we better do. But there is something out there that has led me to believe 
this place is going to be different a year, two, three, four, five years from now than it is today. And we're going to either have input or not. Is somebody on the phone? Uh, let's see here. Yes. Okay. Let's go there. Verd, Marlboro County. Hey, Verd. Good morning. Good Monday morning to you. Uh, Ken, I guess uh, Thursday, uh, I don't know, you probably saw it, uh, the interview that uh, Newt Gingrich did with uh, Laura Ingham. And he basically said that uh, this election is over with. Uh, he said he thinks that the National Republican Party should go ahead and scrap all the rest of the debates. Uh, the needle hasn't moved any at all. He said President Trump is 43 points ahead of uh, his next closest person in most of the early states. And he just said that it, uh, the inevitable is here. And he just feels like that it's uh, counterproductive to continue these debates. And uh, two of them, and they haven't moved a needle at all. If they moved it, it's moved actually in Trump's favor. Uh, several accounts, I don't think Vivek and actually DeSantis, he did pick up a little bit. Nikki Haley's picked up a little bit, but they're not moving the needle enough that uh, three or four more debates is going to make any difference. You know, Donald Trump, he said, is definitely going to be the nominee of the Republican Party. And I was just, Ken, I'd just like to hear your take on it. I, well, mean, I, now, but I, I want to hear yours now. Do you believe that the Republican Party should call off its primary? No, no, no. No, I didn't say that. I said the debates. Okay, okay. Uh, so, Newt New, New, New Gingrich said the debates. Gotcha. Uh, he felt like that uh, they're spending a lot of money. That uh, they've had the two, they've had two chances to cut through, and nobody has. Um, Trump's increased his lead despite not being at the debates. Right. Okay. And I got it's you. Just, I, and I, I go along with it. No, no. I think we need to have the primaries. You know, uh, we. Uh, you remember four years ago, the second Drew McKissick. Uh, we took the. Uh, went to court about not having a primary because he only had one nominal uh, opposition, and that was the right thing to do. It was going to cost upwards of a million dollars or more to put on a presidential primary in South Carolina, and basically you had one candidate, Donald Trump, so it was a, it was a smart thing to do. But you got a lot of what started out as very quality candidates, but some of them have moved up uh, – and I, I think they're still quality people, but they have not moved the needle at all to where you can say they are contending with Donald Trump. And President Trump is just the, these rallies, what few we've done, and uh, the the press conference and stuff he's done. He's moved the needle in his favor, and he's picking up. And like I said, he skipped both debates, and he actually picked his numbers up. So I do, I do think that they should probably consider maybe not having any more debates and I guess concentrate on the primaries, but then, you know, the four primaries coming up, I would say probably President Trump's got an average of probably 40 points ahead on, on all of them. So. Yeah. Thank you, Vert. Yeah, I would probably be supportive of that. I, I, the debates have not accomplished much of anything. They probably hurt the party more more than they've helped the party. I mean, the, the RCP average today, Trump's at 57.6. That's nationally. Uh, in Iowa, he's 49.2. In New Hampshire, he's 45. Uh, New Hampshire, you would, I mean, that, that would be his trouble spot. What's Christie at in New Hampshire? I mean, Chris Christie's running around the country or the mainstream media. He's on every morning show on Sunday mornings talking about how threatening he is to Donald Trump. Let's see, in New Hampshire, he's 9.8. I mean, mm. nobody's, no, and Christie's running around saying, I've got the guts to take on Trump. <laughs> and I think the American public are saying, you've got the gut to take on Trump. <laughs> I'm not sure you've got the guts um, to take on Trump or not. Let's take a break. Don't want to get too far behind in this new insistive <laughs> format but we'll be back at a call we'll get that we'll get back to the call as soon as we get back in just a couple of minutes
843-661-0937. Takes Mondays to make Friday. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Jason and Marion. Good morning, Jason. You're on. Good morning there, Ken and Dave. Um, Ken, you're talking about that friend that posted something on Facebook about something about to happen. Well, let's try this on for size. Now, there's been this theory going along around on social media, and I don't know if you've heard it. Maybe Josh has seen it or heard it. He can kind of comment on it. Now, I'm not sure how this is going to work because Kamala Harris is the vice president, and the person didn't explain this, but with the death of Dianne Feinstein, there's this plan that there, Gavin Newsom is going to appoint Kamala Harris to the vice, I mean, to the her senator spot, and then Biden is going to appoint Gavin Newsom to the vice president, and then for whatever reason, uh, vice president, I mean, Biden is going to step down, and Gavin Newsom is going to be the president. Wow. Have you seen that? or? Yeah, I've read some of that. Well, LaFonza, I have. LaFonza Butler is going to be the, the senator from California. Uh, the only problem is she lives in Silver Springs, Maryland. Maryland. <laughs> She's that. not even from. Uh, thank you, Jason. Thank you. Appreciate the call. Yeah. Um, late yesterday afternoon, last night, there was some pretty good scuttlebutt on Twitter, X, um, about LaFonza Butler. She's a activist. She's a labor organizer. She doesn't live in California, but Gavin Newsom is um, is going to appoint her to finish Diane Feinstein's um, term, and then I would imagine she decides to run or not against um, what's Woody from Toy Story? Uh, <laughs> Adam Schiff. Adam Schiff. Uh, <laughs> he does look like he Woody does. For, he does. He, he does. <laughs> I told a good country boy friend of mine that um, Adam he keeps up with politics, and I said, "Hey, Adam Schiff looks like Woody from Toy Story," and in typical Pamplico Indian fashion, he said, "He damn sure does." <laughs> <laughs> You know, just hilarious the way he um, kind of responded. But but I don't think my friend is arguing that there's going to be this single moment. It's not a lightning strike. I mean, it's not the play that changed the game. You know, the Gamecock fans were waiting on that moment in the game. Uh, but but you kind of saw the, the 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 realities of what was happening, and you knew, okay, I mean, they, there better be a lightning strike or this isn't going to turn out well. I mean, they, you know, you watch football long enough, you see that team's getting the better of that team. I don't think my friend is arguing that there's going to be this moment in time and this lightning strike event, and all of a sudden that changes. I think there's kind of a um, there's there's something happening. There's a here you go. Instead of a lightning strike, there's a thunderstorm brewing. There's a there's a a depression. Excuse me. There's a a disturbance off the coast of Africa that will eventually become a depression. That will eventually become a storm that will eventually become a hurricane, that will eventually become a Category 4 major, Category 5 major hurricane. There, there's kind of a – there's something that is happening that we're going to eventually have to deal with, but it's not a lightning strike out of nowhere. It, it's not a black swan moment. What do we call it? A gray uh, a gray whale? I mean, it, all the signs are there. I mean, you know something's going to happen here. Any, any sane person – has to understand there are a lot of problems in our in our culture, society, uh, financial model. The country is being run by irresponsible people. Uh, it's kind of interesting to me that the, the, the narrative of the shutdown, yesterday I watched a good bit of the Sunday morning shows, and it's about Head Start and, and food trucks in Washington, that their business will, you know, drop and food testers. I mean, we're, you know, you know what happens when you close down the, uh, you know, the USDA or some of these other government agencies? I mean, nobody's testing the food. And next thing you know, people will be dying in the streets from uh, food poisoning and all this. 
Um, I mean, ne- ne- never do they say, you know, we hadn't budgeted in 40 years. <laughs> We're doing CRs and omnibus bills. Instead of educating Americans about spending bills and the appropriations process and continuing resolutions and omnibus, how many Americans would know what a continuing resolution is? How many would know what an omnibus bill is? How many would know anything about the appropriations process or spending bills? Very few. But about all of a sudden, the media, because it's a propaganda arm of one political party and one political sensibility, I mean, they're telling the American people, you know, that the shutdown is going to make food unsafe. And the, uh, you know, the, uh, the hotel workers at some of these hotels in Washington where government workers, uh, you know, the, the life of a bureaucrat. I mean, imagine, you know, um, the disarray in the fresh markets outside of our nation's capital when the bureaucrats making a couple of hundred thousand dollars a year aren't getting paid. I mean, if they were getting furloughed and their paychecks were being suspended, imagine how much panic there would be in the fresh markets um, and some of the Italian restaurants and, and you know, the really nice, the, the, the nice endeavors of mankind in our nation's capital. I just don't believe our friend was talking about a lightning bolt moment and uh, and if he was, then I misinterpreted what the uh, what the post meant. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. But yeah, um, Gavin Newsom is going to appoint Lafonza Butler of Maryland to be senator of California. <laughs> Makes okay. perfect sense to me. Mm-hmm. Back in a few. It takes Mondays to make Fridays. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. A good day if you're a Clemson Tiger. Bad day if you're a Gamecock. Kind of um in, in enduring. The events of this weekend, South Carolina goes up, excuse me, Clemson goes to Syracuse, wins, Gamecocks go to Knoxville and lose to um to Tennessee. But our good friend Ryan Schmills is on cloud nine because the Baltimore Orioles are in the playoffs. <laughs> right, Ryan? Yes. And the and, and and the Ole Miss Rebels had one of the best wins in program history and one of the best games in program history on Saturday. And I got done covering the government shutdown with just enough time to watch the final drive. Dude, <laughs> Ole Miss had 711 yards of offense. 711 <laughs> yards of the SEC. The vaunted defenses yeah. of the Southeastern Conference. Lane Kiffin's the real deal. I will say that. Ryan, hey, we got to get to work now. You and I can drink a beer and talk about Ole Miss and Braves and Gamecocks and and, uh, and Orioles forever, but let's 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 do our let's do our our, our due di- diligent job, our and job, that is yeah. to engage the American public about the seriousness of the government shutdown. Where do we stand, Ryan, this morning at seven o five? Right. So a government shutdown has been avoided after a very very interesting and hectic day on Capitol Hill on Saturday. Pretty much after Republicans failed to get a short term spending bill that they could all agree on uh, to the floor. They decided, Speaker McCarthy decided to put a clean short-term spending package on the floor for 45 days that did not include Ukraine funding and didn't include the border policy measures they were pushing for. Now, Democrats, while this was something we expected them to really like, they decided that they didn't trust the Republicans, so they decided to stall for about 90 minutes. They went to a conference meeting. Then they came out and they all voted for it after they had some some people go over the legislation and make sure it was clean. And you had about 90 Republicans vote no. So then it goes to they went to the Senate later that night. But you had a Democrat senator, Michael Bennett from Colorado, decide to stall and hold out over that because there wasn't any Ukraine funding involved with it. But he eventually ended his holdout. They decided to pass it pretty pretty overwhelmingly there, too. I believe only nine Republicans voted no, and now we have a government shutdown avoided. So what, what do we do in the next 45 days, Ryan? I mean, it, well, how, how do we avert another showdown 45 days from now? 
Right. Well, if you ask the Republicans, they're going to say we've got to get our appropriations process done. You know, they, they've been, they were able to get three passed last week. So they have four of their 12 appropriations bills passed, which are the individual spending bills that would fund the government for the next fiscal year. So they, they're, in, they're still up against the clock or we're going to be facing this again. And the reality is, too, that the Senate and the House both have both have to pass their appropriations bills. And then they're going to probably have to negotiate because they're going to look radically different on each side of the spectrum. So that's what we have to see get done in the next 45 days to not be where we are once again. So last question. So the spending bill passed over the weekend to avoid the shutdown was pre-pandemic or post-pandemic spending levels? It's the spending levels that were agreed to in the debt ceiling agreement that – the Republicans and Democrats uh, came to an agreement on a couple months ago. So it, there are some spending cuts that are in there, but, you know, it, it's pretty much a continuation of current government funding levels for the next 45 days. Thank you, Ryan. Well explained. Go um, go Gamecocks, go um, Hotty Toddy, go Orioles, and go Braves. <laughs> Let's do it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, as always. Good deal. Ryan Schmelz, <laughs> who's a big sports fan as well as a, a White House or D.C. reporter, joins us um, this Monday morning. Yeah, Ole Miss had 711. That was a crazy game. First team to 50 uh, wins, <laughs> and 50 nearly uh, was not enough. Um, 843-661-0937. The, the, the problem with the spending bill, and Matt Gates says, and, I mean, he takes advantage of – Matt Gates is once again a brand. I mean, he likes to promote this brand. He's a, um, a hard-charging outsider, and, you know, Kevin McCarthy is an establishment-oriented um, speaker. Being speaker is hard. I mean, it really and truly is, especially when you've got such a slim margin uh, in the majority. And and people can – I mean, Matt, Matt Gates said this week he's going to make a motion to vacate um, – well, let, let's make sure we say it the right way. A motion to vacate. And that would be the removal of Speaker McCarthy from his job. I, I don't know where that goes from here. Hakeem Jeffries has said it's not our job to keep, you know, the Republican speaker as speaker – but he's not going to have enough Republican votes. In other words, when Gates makes the motion to vacate, there will be enough Republicans that he'll need Democrat support to maintain um, his speakership. I'm just, I'm really frustrated by the fact that the Republicans gave up. And I understand it's kind of an extreme position to hold, but it's the only ace you hold. I mean, it's the only card you can play to really force people to negotiate, and that is the threat of a government shutdown. I mean, really and truly, that that nobody wants to be a part of the government shutting down. So it is the most aggressive measure the Republicans could take. And I read some of the um some of the deal they made over the weekend. It's far more post-pandemic spending levels than it is pre-pandemic spending levels. The one person we're going to try to get on the show today or tomorrow, I doubt we can get him here today, but tomorrow for sure is Ralph Norman. I mean, Ralph has been one of these loud voices about spending reform, and I just I'm, I'm bothered. I'm not I'm not surprised, but but I'm I'm concerned that the media has decided to make this about you know the food trucks that'll go broke, the food tests that won't be done, you know the the government bureaucrats that may not get their paycheck exactly when they think they deserve um, to get their paycheck instead of it being about the fact that we've not had appropriations bills done the way the Constitution insists requires Congress to. We've lumped everything in the CR and omnibus bills, and out of that has come a trillion dollars in spending. You know, and and why would you want to vote on? I mean, if if we go through the, I mean, if we do it the way the Constitution says, 
and the appropriation committees vote on the spending bills, somebody's on the record for wanting to cut Medicare, cut Social Security, cut, you know, uh, Medicaid, cut some of these entitlement programs, because once again, that's the only way to balance the budget. I mean, we, we can cut food stamps, we can cut um, infrastructure spending, education spending. I'm not saying it's meaningless, because I do think there's a lot of waste in some of these government agencies, but the only way the Republicans are going to get to a balanced budget is addressing some of the entitlements. So that's what the Republicans better be careful what you ask for. And I want to ask Representative Norman, because he's been very much involved in this. If the Democrats agree, and as part of this deal, maybe they did. I'm not in the room, and I don't believe anything the media says or reports. I want to know what Ralph talked to uh, with some of the Democrat uh, members. I, I, want to, I want to know what some of the private conversations were about the appropriations process and the spending bills. Because once again, if that was part of the deal, we'll, we'll leave the government open for 45 more days, but you guys have to reconsider your position on, on whether we're going to continue with CRs and omnibus bills and, 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 but rather go to the appropriations committees and, and, and vote, you know, up or down on this spending bill. That's, I think it's 12, there's 12 spending bills, 12 appropriation committees that, that the constitution requires Congress to spend, um, by, but, but I, I want to know from Ralph, are y'all willing? I mean, I think he is, but, but is Congress or the Republicans in Congress willing to participate in an appropriations committee that puts entitlement spending on the table. I mean, m maybe this is the, the moment. I mean, maybe this is what the caller is talking. Something feels different. I mean, I, we, we've said this for 20 years, that we're eventually going to be forced to deal with entitlements. I mean, we've said that for 20 years. And, and the math continues to suggest more strongly that we're going to have to address entitlements in some way. Is this kind of the... Um, I mean, is this the the big moment that people are sensing and feeling that for the first time since Reagan, I mean, Reagan addressed some of the entitlement spending in, in, in you know, and in, in, I'm talking about in small ways. I mean, he raised the eligibility age of Social Security. Reagan calls me about two years of work. <laughs> you know, being born in 63, uh, I was originally promised that I could retire at 65 with full benefit. Now it's 67 and one month, I think, is what mine is somewhere um, there about. But, but anyway, is this, I mean, are the Republicans, if the Democrats, is, is a part of the deal, I'm doing a lousy job of explaining this, but they agree to keep the government open for 45 days. They say they've got a deal that will, you know, force the Democrats to sit down and, and be part of the appropriations process. If that's true, are the Republicans willing to put entitlement spending on the table? Ralph Norman can answer that question, and I want to try to get him on the show um, tomorrow at the latest. Let's go to the phone. Breeze, good morning. You're on. Man, aren't they just pathetic? It's like Jay Clapping, pitiful, pitiful, just pitiful. But uh, I did during the commercial at 7 o'clock. I saw where two uh, scientists got, a no got the Nobel Prize for the mRNA vaccine. Again, yeah, if I'd have heard that 30 years ago, I said, wait, great, great job, because, you know, they did good. But now we know different. You know, and then you were talking about your your friend on Facebook. He says something's going to happen. It's sort of like back in the day you saw a guy building a big boat, and somebody had to start thinking, maybe something's going to happen. Or maybe you're in Germany in 1935, and you're Jewish, and you say, 
maybe something's going to happen, but you ain't sure and everything. But now, if you're not positive something is going to happen, we have gotten all the warnings. The good Lord, as much as I despise the Internet and all these phones, the good Lord has put the warnings out there for us. And I'm not talking about a flood. I'm not talking about a fire. But if you look close enough, the good Lord is showing you who the bad guys are, you know, and uh, and what the bad guys are trying to do, you know. So uh, it's just the problem is, is half the people are just like the, like the guys watching the guy build a boat. They they don't want to believe that the whole world's going to flood. The other people didn't want to believe that somebody was evil enough to kill them all. And half of this country doesn't want to believe that our government and these corporations we have no problem subjugating you just like they would a slave. They have no problem. And believe me, slavery is alive and well here in America and all over the world. But they want us to be subservient to them in one way, shape, form, or another. But I've got a question. Who really gets hurt during a government shutdown? I mean, does it, at what point does it really hurt you or I or Dave or, or one shot, Josh? I mean, really, who, and you can answer that better than I can, Kim, but who really gets hurt during a shutdown? If the, if the Republicans really took the guts to sit there and so say, we're sticking to our guns, we're not going to do anything unless we do A, B, C, D, just like the Constitution says, and they hold on, and they got the guts to say, it may lose me an election, but at least I'll have one daggone thing right for this country. It hasn't been done in a long, long time. Somebody having the guts to say, you know what, I'll go get a job like everybody else. But during this time, I'm willing to lose re-election to do something right for this country. And I don't know if I've got the guts to do that. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. You know, if if it's part of the negotiation to, to keep the government open for 45 days is to put the country back on track of appropriating Instead of CRs and omnibus bills, I'd do that. I mean, that, that's a deal I'd make. I mean, I, I, would, I would keep the government open for 45 days at post-pandemic spending levels if there was a deal. And I'm not talking about you shake my hand, I shake yours. I want something in writing. I want a statute. I, I want an ordinance. I want a bill that says, you know, in four, it, with, within the next 45 days, we are going to abolish continuing resolutions and omnibus bills we're going to mandate Congress meet in these 12 appropriating committees and subcommittees. And out of that comes, you know, a uh, budget and, um, excuse me, that spending bills, the spending bill out of this committee, spending bill out of that committee. And then we give it an up or down vote. And I'll say this, and I know this would cost me my job and it's easy for me to say, but I would go on the stump and I would tell the American people the deal we made on Medicaid, Medicare, and social security, what we can't honor. We just can't. I'm sorry. I mean, I understand the majority of Republican voters over the age of 65 don't want any part of that. I'm not affecting them. But 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 somebody born, you know, 1990 or later, I mean, that we, we got to get some actuaries in play. I mean, I can't tell you what that number is and what the savings are. But but I, I would, if I were a member of Congress today, I would vote for the extension of keeping the government open for 45 days in exchange for the, the abolishment of CRs and omnibus bills in exchange for let's get back to spending bills and the appropriations process as constitutionally um, Congress is required. 843-661-0937. Back in a few. 843-661-0937, our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. 
David in Florence. Good morning, David. You're on the air. Morning, guys. Uh, I, I just I can't believe that these guys have had almost a year to to deal with this. Uh, you know, uh, with the appropriations and everything. I mean, it's just been sitting around on their hands. Well, I take that back. They're not sitting around on their hands. They're too busy trying to uh, showboat and 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 just. Uh, do all this crazy stuff up there with Hunter Biden and Joe Biden and so on and so forth. Uh, I mean, are they are they uh, crooks? More than likely, probably. But you have to set your priorities, guys. I mean, holy cow! You need to run the country and uh, and quit worrying about all the showboating stuff. And Gates, bless his heart, he needs to realize this ain't about him standing in front of a camera talking about how spectacular he is and how he's uh, going to do this and going to do that. I mean, we need we need these guys to work together, do their job, and take care of the American people. I mean, it's, it's nuts, uh, the, the, just the way they're doing this. Uh, 45 days from now, guess what? It'll be down to the wire. Uh, the world's going to come to an end because we're going to have a shutdown, so on and so forth, just like it was this time. I mean, uh, there's a thing, Ken, when you sit down with a client or uh, or someone that you're going to do business with, he's on one side of the table, you're on one side of the table, you're going to negotiate what's best for you and your company, he wants what's best for him and his company, and you meet in the middle, and it's called compromise. Holy smoke. I mean, this is absolutely insane, all the showboating and stuff that's going on up there in Washington. It is nuts. All right, guys, have a good day. Thank you, but it, it, thank you. Appreciate the. It won't be forty-five days because from what I mean, from what I've read, and once again, I'm not privileged to these conversations, and I don't know who to take it their word or not. I mean, they know one another. They know who can be uh, who can be a bit vague and ambiguous, and who you can take at their word. But but it, I mean, from what I'm reading, McCarthy promised the Democrats some Ukrainian funding, kind of kind of aside from the Republicans. Some of the part of the Republicans was uh, we'll vote for this if it includes no Ukrainian additional funding. So McCarthy goes to the Democrats and say, my side will, my crowd will vote for it, but we can't have any Ukrainian funding as part of this omnibus bill or the CR. And But but they're going to come back in a week or so. I mean, I, I'll assure you of that. I mean, the Democrats and some Republicans are going to ask for additional funding for Ukraine, and that's going to be another sticking point. And I want to say this. Reasonable people can disagree. I mean, I think John made a very valid point. I mean, when a business owner and another business owner sit aside, let's say Dave Baker wants to buy my business, and I think my business is worth a million dollars, and Dave thinks it's worth a half million. I mean, the logical conclusion would say, you know, you'll buy it for seven hundred fifty thousand, but that's not the truth. It may be nine fifty, it may be five fifty, but we're reasonable about what the numbers say, what what the math leads us to, what what are the revenues, what are the the liabilities, what is the long term plan, what is the growth, what is the you know, what are the margins? I mean, you know, where are the trouble spots? Where's the, the room? I mean, all these are, those are legitimate debates to have within. And I'm all for the government debating about how, but, but these are reasonable doubt. I mean, reasonable debates. There's nothing reasonable about spending a trillion dollars a year you don't have. There's just not, I'm sorry. I mean, there's nothing reasonable about that. We, we've got to stop deficit spending, guys. And I do believe, going back to the caller, or excuse me, the, the listener's uh, Facebook post, that to me is the, the the ominous storm. Not the omnibus bill, but the ominous storm is this debt bubble, this debt bomb that is going to blow up one day 
and have a generational effect on America. That 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 probably is the storm on the horizon. I mean, you know, with a trillion dollars, it is a you know a um, a disturbance off the coast of Africa. At five trillion, it's a depression. At ten or fifteen trillion, it's a um, it's a Category One hurricane. It's thirty three point one trillion. We're spending eight hundred billion dollars a year servicing our debt, and we're continuing to spend roughly a trillion dollars a year we don't have. That's not reasonable. There's nothing reasonable about that. So, so when Dave Baker and I sit down and he wants to pay 500000 for my business and I say it's worth $600 million, I mean, he gets up and walks out. Well, there's no need in us negotiating. Anymore. Somebody has to be an adult and address spending a trillion dollars a year we don't have. And I want to get Ralph Norman to tell me, as part of this deal, was putting entitlement spending on the table and addressing it in a meaningful way fashion because that's the only way to spend, excuse me, I'm going to sound like an economist here. You ready? To bend the spending curb to a place of solvency. Let's go to the phone. Matt in Florence, good morning. You're on. Hey, guys. I don't know. Maybe I'm just a, you know, an anarchist or something, but I don't give a crap if the government shuts down. I want it to. Um, I think the largest impediment to the American dream right now is the government whenever they operate. The military still gets paid. Essential people still get paid. I mean, the way I see it, if you're one of those people that sent home, your job was unnecessary to begin with. That's just me. Um, I don't care. I honestly don't care if it shuts down. I know that's bad, and people say, no, you can't think like that, but I just don't. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate it. I mean, the, the anarchist in me agrees with Matt, but, but I got to be pragmatic, and I got to, well, I mean, we got to have a government. So is there a way to extract 8% across the board spending cuts? I mean, there's some debate. That number was thrown around at the end of last week. Eight percent across the board spending cuts. That's a big number. I mean, eight percent across the board spending cuts. That's a big number. Now, remember, we're talking about post and pre-pandemic, and, and I don't have any clarity there. And and I normally do a pretty decent job of reading and deciphering. But when I read these articles and I hear these members of Congress say X, Y, or Z, I'm like, Are you talking about pre or post-pandemic spending levels? And I can't get clarity. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville. Good morning, Joe. You're on. Yeah, good morning, guys. The problem is they're arguing over $1.7 trillion. Out of $6 trillion they spent, $1.7 trillion is discretionary. Rest of it's automatic, mandatory spending. So you're right. We have to cut Medicare and Social Security, Medicaid. But Joe, you would, but Joe, you you would agree it's on autopilot because we've not budgeted. We've allowed right. the CR and omnibus bills to. We put everything in this big bucket and we vote on it all in one instead of going through the twelve committees that appropriate dollars on behalf of the American taxpayer. Exactly, and they haven't taken their own advice. Remember a while back, I talked about the the Bowl Simpson committee. And then you had Rand Paul talking about a 1% cut. But see, these people don't talk about cuts. They talk about cuts in the increase of spending. The government either needs to go back to baseline budgeting, which you start out at zero and justify your spending, or they're going to have to hold, you know, just the growth in the economy if you go zero increase the, the the budget will balance itself 
in about eight years because they 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 increase spending every year about eight percent and sometimes maybe they might cut it down to six and say oh we cut the budget by two percent no you didn't you cut your rate of spending by two percent but right now medicare medicaid the military and interest on the debt is about $4.5 trillion. So they can cut out all of this discretionary spending, and, and you'll be right at a balanced budget. So you've got nothing for anything else. You're borrowing money to do that. So, you know, I'm on Social Security, but it wouldn't hurt my feelings if they came up tomorrow and said, Joe, in, in order to balance this out, and we're going to take a cut across the board, we need you to take a 25% pay cut. Now, in 10 years, that's going to happen anyway if they don't do something. But I'm willing to do it today to save this country, and the same on everything. They can take my whole Social Security. I don't care. It wouldn't have bothered me one bit because I have planned my life according to what I was taught as a child. So I'm, they can take it all, and it won't bother me. But they, they keep spending, you know, they, the government's going to shut down. I tried calling Social Security Saturday. Guess what? Nobody's there. It was shut down anyway. The government shuts down every weekend, every holiday, and they don't say nothing about it. But all of a sudden, now they can't get money. They had no problem shutting the private sector down, but shut them down. Oh my lord, they all get into a tizzy. But that's all they're fighting over is one point seven trillion. We got to fight over a heck of a lot more than that. Yeah, thank you, uh, Joe. Appreciate uh, it. We, we we got to. I mean, some of the spending curves, some of the and and I mean, for those that aren't familiar, I mean, I, I believe this, and I've said it over the air. I mean, when I was on county, I didn't budget in Columbia. I mean, I presided over the Senate, and I and I watched a lot of the budgeting take place, and, and I knew some of the deals they'd made. You know, they didn't make them in the Senate chamber; they made them in the, the the committee process. So, so Jeff Gossett, who was the clerk of the Senate, would come to me and say, "Hey, you know, this is going to happen today, and and we're going to have to address it via this senator or that senator." That that's some of the deal making, but but it didn't concern me nor alarm me because there was not the ability to uh, deficit spend at the South Carolina State Senate. I mean, it's not my job to tell senators how much to spend on education or infrastructure or how much the, uh, you know, some, some of the joint bond review board, you know, the, um, is there a revenue source to pay the USC and Clemson debt back? I mean, that, that's really none of my business. At the county level, I felt the most important job I had and was asked to do was spend your taxpayer dollars. And, and I remember the, um, the introduction to the budget, second reading of the budget, third reading of the budget. We could argue about roads and bridges and, you know, fixing this ditch or putting a, you know, whatever. I mean, stormwater drainage and all these things that local government has a responsibility to do. But, but I, I just always felt the budgeting process was when government needs, needs to be its most responsible. That's when you're spending people's hard-earned money. And there has to be some degree of seriousness that goes along with that. And the fact that we're spending trillions of dollars by not going through the appropriations process, not having spending bills, but rather, hey, put all that money in a big bucket and let's vote on a CR. Yeah, that's easy. An omnibus bill or CR. 
that's dereliction of duty. That's neglecting your responsibility to do the most important thing the public sends you to do, and that is spend their taxpayer dollars. Take a break. Back in a few. See, the problem is, I mean, I, I mean I, it doesn't matter whether you like Matt Gates, whether you like Kevin McCarthy, whether you like Hakeem Jeffries. It, I mean, none of that matters, and it goes back to math. That's the frustration I have. I don't expect Gates and McCarthy and Jeffries and Pelosi to agree. I mean, I, I expect them to have a lot of different opinions, but, but at some point in time, and I think we said it earlier, somebody has to be an adult. And, and I don't know how you prance around Washington with your entourage knowing that you're spending a trillion dollars a year that this country doesn't have. I mean, it's almost like, I mean, this is the weirdest, most provocative way to say it, but it's almost like child abuse. I mean, it's almost like we're going to indebt our future generations to our irresponsibility. I mean, if you go back to Jeffersonian government, one of the prerequisites of Jeffersonian government was um, Jefferson's personal belief. Now, he didn't abide by it all the time. Nobody's perfect. He was not a robot nor a Vulcan. I mean, Jefferson was a very complicated man. But one thing he consistently believed was this world is going to be different. And why do I believe that my political theories, my way of seeing things, should be allowed to dictate what generations to come, um, you know, and what they're obligated to? I mean, when you look at Jefferson's writing, the one consistent was liberty and freedom, right? I mean, that's timeless. I mean, what's the MasterCard commercial? You know, a box of popcorn, a beer, a hot dog, you know, a, a baseball game with your kid, priceless. Well, I mean, Jefferson and, and most of the founders, I would say all of the founders, believe that liberty and freedoms were timeless, that don't have a price. But, but we're, we're making our generations to come less liberated and less free. We're encumbering them with enormous amounts of debt that eventually somebody's going to have to pay. And, and what we're basically saying is we don't care or we're modern monetary theorists. I mean, that, that's all you can say. The only question to ask a member of Congress today, are you a modern monetary theorist? No. Well, you just don't care? I mean, do you not care about future generations and how irresponsible we've been? Because I'll say this. I think most governments and I think most voters understand that in rare moments of, you know, military conflict, when America goes to war, we do what we have to do to build a war machine. I mean, when our sovereignty and safety and security is at risk, we do whatever it takes. I mean, if we've got to borrow a trillion dollars, th- th- we do whatever necessary. I mean, our, our security and well-being and, and existence is at risk. But, but we're doing this in the most mundane, predictable way, and we're allowing elected officials to not be held accountable by passing CRs and omnibus bills. And the debate in America today uh, is really, I mean, I watched all the Sunday morning shows yesterday, and all I heard was Head Start and the food programs and the rent subsidies and the poor people that will be so left out in the cold because government is shutting down. Those are just talking points. Sure, but that's all it is, is talking points. Why why doesn't somebody uh, of, of serious nature say, yeah, but I mean, if you think about it, some of these Republicans are making a valid point about the amount of debt this nation is um is incurring and it's it's staggering. I mean it's it's un- see I don't believe that the majority of Americans can fathom a trillion. I mean I think if there was a way to convince Americans that the average American how much a trillion dollars is, I think they would freak out. I, I really believe that. Whoa 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 do what? A trillion is how much? And we hold how many? And eventually you know some of these bills will come due and. 
I mean, it's the driver of inflation. It's the reason that you're poorer. I mean, Reggie Armstrong comes on Thursday mornings, and Reggie talks about reasonable rates of return and, you know, and, and investment portfolios. Um, I mean, do, do we know how much return you have to make on your money to make a margin above inflation? I mean, if you're making, let, let's say, I mean, I'll use this as an example. Let's say you're buying 30-year um, T-bills, and they're paying you, I'm making up a number, they're paying you 4%. To me, you're losing money because inflation is outpacing the percentage of um of, of uh, percentage of interest you're making on your money. So you're really you're backing up. And, and it's all about this debt, 33 trillion dollars in debt, and government has driven this train. Um we talked last week. Um and this probably goes back to some of what our our good caller calls in about. I didn't know this until I started reading it because I'm concerned about real estate and property and and where do we go from here? I didn't know the government owned 25% of all mortgages. I mean, I knew it was a lot. I mean, $2.5 trillion of mortgage-backed securities is on the Fed's balance sheet. I mean, the, the, the mortgage industry in America is about $11 trillion, somewhere-ish, $11-ish trillion. So, so the Fed has on its balance sheet 25% of all mortgage debt. It's got about nine about $8.6 trillion in total debt. I mean, that's how we're running our country. That's how we're running our economy. And we're worried about Head Start. I mean, we're worried about food trucks in front of the Capitol that won't have customers if we shut businesses down. We're worried about the um, the fresh food markets in, in Silver Springs and, and Bethesda and some of these other, you know, places that need Washington to exist at the rate it does. And that really goes back to my, my central concern. And, and I'm not an economist, and I have no idea. Uh, I like to, to ask weird questions that there are no real answers. I mean, I think those are the most interesting data points imaginable. Um, the most interesting question I think we should ask ourselves, you don't know, I don't know the answer, but I think we should consistently ask ourselves this. What does our economy look like without the trillion dollars a year that the government is injecting? What does our economy look like if we honestly had to balance the budget? How much of this is kind of um, hocus-pocus? How much is this is phony baloney? How much economic growth is predicated on the government borrowing money it doesn't have? What would the housing market look like today? What would that $450,000 home be worth if the government didn't have $2.5 trillion of mortgage-backed securities on its, on its balance sheet? But, but, you know, we're more worried about head start and food trucks than we are the serious nature of the debt we're incurring that we will leave future generations. It is one of the most irresponsible things any generation of humanity has ever done. I mean, Breeze was talking about the Holocaust and what the Nazis did. And, you know, uh, would, would that really happen? Well, I mean, I don't, I don't think that would happen here. But, but we're, we're, we're basically executing a, a financial plan that is going to prohibit future generations from living from living liberated and free, I can assure you of that. Math is math. I mean, you can be a, a conservative Republican from Wyoming or a liberal Democrat from California. I don't give a damn if you're living on the plains of Wyoming or, or the um, the enclaves of California. Two plus two equals four in both places. And sooner or later, math finds you and finds you out. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Fridays. Let's shift gears and go away from the debt, the debt ceiling, and the government shutdown. We'll get back to that in just a couple of minutes. Um, 
Donald Trump's New York fraud trial is going to start this week, I think, if I'm not mistaken. We have with us nationally known legal expert who's often called on to represent clients in high-profile cases. I don't get that call. He does. His name is Larry Friedman. Uh, Larry, good morning. How are you, sir? Thank you, Ken. I appreciate you having me. So there's so many Trumps and trials going on, we can't make heads nor tails of where, when, how, and uh, and what about. But uh, the New York judge uh, ruled in a – I guess this, this – um, uh, he, he was dishonest on his financial statements. Some of the values he said didn't correlate with some of the financial information he provided. Um, as a as a nationally known legal expert, what's your take on this New York fraud trial? Well, New York judge uh, ruled last week that the Trump organization and Donald Trump committed fraud by inflating the value of certain assets on statements of financial condition, basically financial statements that Donald Trump and his organization submitted to banks over the last 20 years in order to get more favorable terms on loans from these financial institutions. You know, my take is this, nobody complained about these financial statements. In other words, there were no victims, all the loans were repaid repaid back in full. There were no complaints by any of the banks or lending institutions. None of the banks lost any money. In fact, to the contrary, all of the banks made money and there were no damages. So this is a lawsuit generated by Letitia James, the New York Attorney General, specifically to get Donald Trump like she vowed to do after she was elected Attorney General of New York. So, so, Larry, you stated what I believe, but is there legal peril here? I'll give you an example. My, my banker, I mean, I, I don't just host a radio show. I have some other businesses, and we borrow money, and we're asked to provide financial statements. And our banker's our friend, and he always jokes and says, whatever you guys write down, I cut in half. So it's kind of the nature of uh, the way those transactions are. are t- but does he have legal peril here? Well, he has real peril because, one— People in New York hate his guts. Number two, in particular, the attorney general and this judge hate his guts. He's been feuding with this judge over the last, I don't know, four, six months. Uh, You know, he's called the judge deranged and fake. And the judge has already assessed him liable for these acts under the New York statute. So this next phase of the trial will be what about what penalties the judge will assess against Donald Trump. And the potential penalties are severe, really severe. He's, Donald Trump is facing maybe $250 million in cash civil penalties. The judge could award a lifetime ban against Donald Trump and his sons and officers uh, against being a, an officer or director of any New York company. The judge could also order a five-year ban on Trump acquiring any real estate in New York. And then worst of all, the judge could order disgorgement of any profits Trump or his organization made on any real estate transaction that was reflected on any of his financial statements over the last 20 years. So basically, this is about ruining Trump financially. Larry, you're, you're an expert. I'm not. I have a perception and a belief that we're watching 
um, the political prosecution uh, via the judicial system in America of a, you know, a, a politician that people who are in power don't particularly care uh, to be in the world of politics. This is more philosophical and less specific. How alarmed are you? How concerned are you? Uh, because I believe the application of justice is the most important thing our government does, and half of Americans don't have faith in the equal application of that justice. Philosophically, where, where do you stand there? No, I think it's very sad because, number one, this is a deterrent for all good people to run for political office. No one's going to run for political office if they're facing financial ruin, and no one is going to put their family through this. Look, this attorney general went after Donald Trump and his sons and his daughter and his business associations associates. So who, who's going to put their family and their friends and their business associates at risk in order to serve the public? I mean, they're chasing good people out of public service. In addition, where is our public servants? I mean, why isn't the, the New York State Attorney General interested in real criminal enforcement? Why aren't they dealing with child endangerment or cybercrime or human trafficking or sex crimes? Why are they going after uh, Donald Trump in instances where nobody's complaining about it? Nobody's lost money. There hadn't been any damages. You tell me. Well explained. Larry, thank you for your time. Appreciate the sure. info. Appreciate the perspective and insight. Have a great day, sir. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. That's kind of an interesting um, take from a nationally known legal expert. I'm not nationally known, nor am I a legal expert. So, so let's go back to the comparison. Josh, I'm going to get your take on this. You're 25 years old, right? Yep. I mean, you're, um, you're a guy that will endure whatever circumstances we baby boomers, and Rev would be not a baby boomer, um, but and of that generation. Gen Xer. Okay, a Gen X. Um, what, what concerns you more? The fact that there is, or appears to be, let's be fair. I, I want to be fair. I don't want to be a hacker. Um, I don't know. No, hacker's the wrong word there. Hacker's the one that steals your information, takes <laughs> your, your money. I, I don't want to be someone who is perceived as somewhat of a hack on the radio. I've always tried to shy away from that. Um, so you've got, you've got these two storms Let's go back to the to the to the social media message that a good caller and listener to our show said. Something doesn't feel right. I mean, something just feels a bit out of sorts. It's abnormal. I mean, every day is abnormal. Every day has its normal parts of the day and its abnormal parts parts of the day. But he's talking about something larger than that. Are you more alarmed as a young guy about the debt or the apparent persecution? of those who aren't supposed to be in the world of politics, influence, and power. What, what is a bigger deal to Josh this morning? I mean, you're a young guy. You, you've got a future ahead of you. I mean, I've got more days in the rear view than I do with the front windshield. You're just the opposite of me. Good Lord willing, you've got a lot of living left to do um, and, and a lot of experiences left to experience. And I mean, I think you're going to do it the good old US of A. So, so are you more concerned about the debt bomb and the problem that I think that creates or the fact that it appears that those in power don't want anybody out of power to threaten them via some, you know, electing of some crazy man that you don't know what he may or may not do. Um, I definitely, I mean, obviously both are huge problems, but I think that the, uh, the elite, you know, how they're handling Trump uh, is, 
is the bigger issue because Trump was the reaction to Obama and these kind of issues like the debt. He was, you know, for years people were talking about having a businessman as president, and then we got one. And he posed a threat to the established elite's power, and look what they're doing to him. I mean, this is clearly, you know, certain people can say, well, he's he's guilty of this, he's guilty of that. All All presidents are guilty of something, probably more so like criminal action than what Trump is being accused of, but they are throwing everything at him to get him out of office. And it's, you know, we, we supposedly live in a, in a free country, but I think the actions of the current establishment are showing that we really don't. I mean, you know, we, we, we kind of tiptoe around it, but I'm of the mind that the 2020 election was pro what, you know, there's some suspicious stuff going. I don't know that we tiptoe around it. We don't declare the election stolen. Right. Beyond I think, the shadow I, I mean, of I, well, I mean, I, I think if you say the election was stolen, period, then prove it. Right. I mean, and I don't think you can. I mean, I think you can say, wow. I mean, something doesn't make sense here. I mean, it appears that there was some uh, nefarious activity in, in Fulton County, Gwinnett County, um, you know, in uh, in Philadelphia, in Pittsburgh, in Detroit, in, uh, you know, Racine County, Wisconsin. I mean, yeah, you know, Maricopa County area. There, there are a lot of statistical anomalies out there. But, but I want to go back to something you said. Mm-hmm. See, I think it's interesting, Rev, and, and I think subconsciously, um, I'm, I'm being a bit of a psychoanalysis here of Josh, I think subconsciously we look at those two, and, and I'm talking about this storm brewing. You know, what is the bigger storm? Is it the debt bubble? Yes. That's the bigger storm. I mean, the, the, the world will endure or not Donald Trump. I mean, the, you know, the, there will be a president that was a president before Trump. There'll be a president after Trump. If he gets reelected, there'll be another one sooner or later, but, but you can't put a face with the debt. There's no person there. It's, it's like, it's the universe that we know nothing about. And when somebody says, did you know a trillion dollars in seconds is 32,000 years? You kind of check out then you're like, dude, I mean, I know my brain burns really when I start Just thinking about stop that and yeah. think about that, well, it's, you know, but, but we're spending that we're spending money at that rate that we don't have. Uh, in, in other words, if, if if dollars were seconds, we're spending 33 trillion seconds, excuse me, 33,000 years of seconds every year. I mean, it's such an unfathomable number. But, but Josh, you didn't surprise me with your answer. Now, mm-hmm. I think your answer's wrong. Really? I, I do. I think the, the fact that we're taking one guy and, and we're kind of treating him differently than we've ever treated anybody else, that's a big deal. I mean, we, we just had a legal expert and, and talked about how long the concern is about the, the non-equal application of the law. That's a big deal. But, but the debt is going to forever change our existence. I mean, at some point in time, we're going to live in a world where we're held responsible. I don't know when that is. Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett don't know. They don't think they'll live long enough because one's 99 and the other's like 94 or something. So, you know, they got plenty of money, so it doesn't matter to them. But, but the average rank-and-file American, 25-year-old Josh, is going to live in a fundamentally different world, not because of the unequal application of justice in Donald Trump, but, but rather our government's inability to demonstrate physical responsibility or restraint. That's going to fundamentally, trust me, Josh, one of these days when you're an older buck and you look back and say, hey, man, I remember that guy with that accent years and years and years ago <laughs> said that there was going to be a moment in my life 
that I regretted how irresponsible previous generations had been in their inability to spend money. Well, let me say this. I, I actually I do agree with you and I get what you're saying, because I think directly the debt will affect me and, you know, spouse, children way more well, I mean, than it already has. I mean, it all, see, and that's what I want to I mean, I want to punch people in the face and say, wake up. The reason that houses have gone from two hundred fifty thousand to four hundred twenty five thousand is not the price of good cost of goods sold. I mean, there's some of that. It's all inflation driven. And the private sector can't incre- can't can't create inflation. The government spending a trillion dollars a year, it doesn't have. The government owning two and a half trillion dollars worth of mortgage-backed securities. The government buying debt that Congress appro- Congress appropriates money it doesn't have. The government buys that debt with the money, or the Fed buys that debt with money they don't have. I mean, that's kind of our financial formula. All of that drives inflation. All of that creates a less opportunity for Josh. Josh's money, whatever he makes. It doesn't go as far. Right. And, and I believe this. I mean, I'll say this before we take our break. I believe that once the debt bubble burst, and I don't know when that is, Munger, Buffett, and I will discuss together at some point in time <laughs> when we think that number is. But whenever that number, whenever we get to that number and 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 we begin dealing with the consequences of our irresponsibility, I believe that every dollar every American has in their pocket, bank account, savings account, 401k, is going to be worth one-third of what you thought it was worth. If you've got $3 million saved up, if you've done exceedingly well and you've got $3 million in a retirement account, it's going to equate to about a million. I think that's where we're headed. I think the, the dollar is going to lose about two-thirds of its value. And I think it's going to lose its status as the world preferred currency. And, and you nor I nor anybody listening to my voice has ever lived in a world where the dollar was not the preferred global currency. What does that look like? Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937, our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Daphne and Dylan, good morning. You are on. Good morning, guys. Uh, we are currently living under a tyrannical government. The fact is, What's happening to Trump is not just about Trump. The fact is, it's a way of intimidating and warning all of us. It's a tactic to get us to sit down and shut up. We will not accept your objecting to any election. We will not accept you speaking out against anything that we want to do, whether it be lawful or unlawful. We will not accept the fact that the senators that you put in, you Republicans put in, uh, acquiesced and gave Biden over $2 trillion each bill that they voted on because they are part of the end game. And the end game is to take over everything and control it. They already controlled education. They controlled health insurance. They took over the home loans. They took over the student loans. They're taking over energy. They've opened the borders wide open so that the people that come in can help them finish bankrupting this nation. If you don't believe that, somebody's living in a delusional world because Jeff 
eventually, I believe, will see that he, just because he's on the progressive wagon, will not be excluded from the pain that is coming. Thank you. Thank you, Daphne. Well, see, that's my point. I mean, I understand that Republicans and Democrats feel differently about Trump. I mean, Republicans and Republicans feel differently about Trump. I mean, I understand that. And once again, I, I, Josh kind of Josh didn't back up, but Josh re kind of re, recast his his statement. I believe that the majority of us are so intrigued or interested because there's a face there, there's a personality. Um, you defend something. I don't know how you defend the way we're spending money that we don't have. Now, I think Jeff tried to, and Jeff basically said, "Well, we're doing better than the communists do." Well, I mean, I hope we do, but I hope our economy grows consistently better than a communist dictatorship. I mean, if that's really what we've reduced ourselves to, but but in all honesty, guys, let's go back to the poll. You ready? 58% of Democrat primary voters. I think it's higher than that. I think it's two in three. Two in three Democrat voters believe socialism is a better way to manage an economy than capitalism. I mean, that's where we are. That's I mean, it's, it's unbelievable to me. To, to kind of say that out loud, that the majority of Americans believe that, that socialism offers them a better chance you know, than, than capitalism. And, and I've criticized capitalism. I mean, I, I'm easy, I'll, I'll say it. I said it last week a hundred times. I'll say it again. I think many Republicans, myself included, were guilty of treating capitalism as somewhat of an idol rather than an economic theory. It's not perfect. It's not exempt from its issues. And um, but, but, but once again... I don't know how we have that variety of opinions when it comes to debt. I, I, for the life of me, I understand Trump. Like him, hate him, vote for him, don't vote for him. But but when you think about the United States government and its utter dependence on people buying our debt. But you barely hear people in Congress who are in charge of the budget and the money. You barely hear them even address this issue. A few do. But, but I mean, why would you open a door that there is no answer to? Well, they better figure out well, an I mean, answer. Well, I mean, we're going to be forced at some point in time. I mean, as, as my father famously said, it works till it don't work no more. And, and it's bizarre to me that, once again, in the government shutdown, you've got responsible media. Now, they're, they're propaganda, but, but let's, let's, let's say that these folks are, are serious enough and smart enough and informed enough to, 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 to argue points of merit. And we got a government shutdown, and there's some radical extremist. You know what the radical extremists want? Appropriation bills, spending bills. They want um, the rule of order. They, they want the Constitution followed. They want the, the House of Representatives to do their Sure, their job. constitutionally obligated responsibility. I mean, right. to, 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 to meet via appropriations committees, to, out, of that, out of those committees come spending bills, and then you debate the spending bill on the floor. And, and Josh wants to do X, and I want to do Y, and Rev wants to do Z, and we kind of debate that. And we, you know, but, but, but all of it, there is no debate. Josh gets X, I get Y, you get Z, and it doesn't matter what it costs. I mean, we got $1.7 trillion of student debt that the taxpayer is not the guarantor. You're the issuer of debt now. I mean, in the Obamacare legislation, I mean, the, 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 the government went from being the guarantor of the debt to the issuer of the debt, $1.7 trillion in student debt. Um, and and the, the American public have done no better. I mean, $1.5 trillion in credit card debt. That's about $1.3 trillion in credit. It'll be $1.5 by end of Christmas. Um, but it's somewhere about 
$3 trillion. And we've done all this when rates have been historically and artificially low. And there is no good out here. There's no good answer to any of this. And I just believe, um, I mean, what if the people that buy our debt decided that we weren't a good investment anymore? What would happen? I mean, because once again, the Fed issues the debt. The public and foreign governments buy the debt. What would happen if we, the people, said thank you but no thank you to, to American debt? If the world said thank you but no thank you to American debt? I mean, I think that's when politicians are forced. They don't have a choice then. It's not what you want to do. It's what you must do. Now, once again, the modern monetary theorists will argue that as long as we have the authority to print money, it's, it's not a big deal. Well, if that's the case, then send everybody a couple of million dollars and, and let's call it quits. I mean, if debt doesn't matter, why wouldn't we send 330 million people a million dollars each? Because debt does matter. It's absurd to suggest it does not matter. And, and once again, we have become utterly dependent on debt. The only way we can govern our nation is to borrow money that we don't have in hopes and anticipation that someone finds us to be a worthy investment. And the only ace in the hole we've had for 30 years is the demand for the dollar. I mean, we, we seem to be a better choice than some of the other foreign currencies. I mean, that, that's beginning to be debated now, whether or not we're better. Um, I mean, remember some of the BRIC nations talking about the end of the petrodollar? Mm-hmm. That there's a book out called Petrodollar Dusk. Petro One Dong. I mean, I think China's got its problems. I don't know that they're accurately reporting uh, some of the Chinese issues with their with their economy. But but it's not my job to say we suck, but they suck worse than we do. I mean, I, you know, to be honest with you, I don't care much about what happens in the Chinese economy. I mean, I understand we can't isolate ourselves from you know what happens in some of these other lands that we have interactions and business dealings with. But, but I, you know, I, I, I'm worried about the American economy. And what does the good old U.S. of A. look like 40, 50 years from now? Beijing? Uh, let them say grace over what it is they've got to say grace over. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. We've been talking a lot about, you know, the na- national debt this morning. Um, so what, what do you think ultimately happens? Ah. <sighs> <laughs> How do we deal with this, and then what, what, what happens? Here's here's what I think forces our hand. Josh is looking now. See, Josh, this is crazy fool talks funny, but I think it is. I think eventually the, the, the foreign debt, and this is weird. I can't find an answer. I don't think it's secure to collateralize. I mean, what do you do? The Chinese government says, we'll loan you this money, but we want the, you know, we, we want the bill to sell for the Grand Canyon. You know, we, right. we want all the uh, drilling rights that the Americans, uh, you know, America owns a lot the federal government owns a lot of property, um, especially out west. Some of that property is very valuable, um, minerals and resources and oil and gas and, and whatnot. But, but from what, everything I've ever read, don't quote me on this, but it looks to me like the Chinese and, and Japanese and some of these other countries that invest in America by buying our debt, it is unsecured, uncollateralized debt. Here's what I think happens at some point in time, and this is the geopolitical part of it. I think at some point in time, China says, we'll loan you more money. We'll borrow more of your debt, but we want to be caught up. I mean, all you're doing is paying the interest. We want a principal payment. 
I mean, you owe us $9 trillion, $10 trillion, $11, 12000000000000 trillion. I think it's about a third of our debt is owned by foreign governments. Uh, maybe 40% of our debt. No, it's probably a third. A third of our debt is owned by foreign governments. I think eventually those foreign governments have responsibility to themselves and their people, right? I mean, they're not beholden to the, the guy in Pamplico. And I think eventually those foreign governments say, hey, before we buy any more debt, yeah, we, we got this big number over here, and it's, it's unsecured and uncollateralized. And and for us to to loan you more money to buy more of your debt, we need you to not get current because we're paying the interest payments, but we need to make a principal payment here. The FDIC, I mean, a, a business guy speculates on a house, and he buys the house, and he sells to his banker. He says, hey, I want to be interest only for six months. And the banker says, I can do it for six months now, but the FDIC eventually wants to know why we aren't paying principal. It, it kind of becomes a concern uh, of the regulators. Now, I'm not saying you can't go to the bank and say, look, this thing's taking longer than I thought. The economy got a little soft. I mean, of course, if you've got a relationship with the bank, they'll work with you. Last thing they want is that house back. So they may extend the terms of interest only, but, but you can't do it in perpetuity. So I believe eventually, because I don't think we gave the title to the Grand Canyon to the Chinese. And I think eventually the Chinese and Japanese and all these other governments that have bought American debt, I think they say, look, the debt's unsecured, uncollateralized. If we're going to buy any more debt, instead of just paying the interest, we need a big principal payment. What do we do then? I mean, maybe we give them the title to the Grand Canyon. They might say, hey, uh, we'll take Alaska. Well, I mean, I'm just saying, I mean, I, you, you ask me what happens, yeah. I don't know. I don't have any idea. I've just never seen. I've never, well, I mean, I've never seen the loan documents on $33.1 trillion of debt. I've never seen the covenants and what agreement we make, but, but I don't think it's, well, I'm going to ask you a question. When you buy a T-bill, when you invest in the American government, I mean, do you get collateral? Is it secure? I mean, the full faith and credit of the American government, what is that? That ain't the Grand Canyon. <laughs> right. That's not the oil rights in Texas, the gas rights in Oklahoma. I, I don't know the answer to that. But, but I do believe that sooner, you ask me what will happen, I think sooner or later, these foreign governments will say, we will buy more debt, but you've got to make some principal payments. And we don't have the money to make the principal payments. That's how businesses fail. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington, good morning. You are on. I think you're on to something, Ken, there. I don't, I don't think you can get away from international debt like that. Mike, the you know, only thing we is- could do, now I'm, I'm going to be crazy, but the only thing we could do is is accuse China of costing our economy 6 or $7 trillion by exporting COVID and and settling that score in some weird way. I mean, that, that would be something Trump would probably say. You know, we owe you $7 trillion, but you cost our economy $6.7 trillion, so here's a uh, paid-in-full invoice. Yeah, uh, lots of luck getting that through in the present <laughs> environment. I don't see how we've got uh, the leverage to do that. And I think they absolutely will at some point going to say, hey, you got all those capped oil wells in North Texas and uh, Oklahoma, and you got them capped wells and easy wells in uh, California. Let's, let's just bust them open, and you can pay on the principal in uh, oil. We need some oil. And uh, to keep our economy going, we're oil poor, and uh, we could sure use that. And you're not using it. What What are you doing with it? So let's just uh, bust that out there. And uh, I, I don't think it's that far from the imagination that uh, some kind of ultimatum is issued at some point, especially 
we let our military deteriorate because I I don't think uh, the Chinese are adverse to using force to get their way. And uh, I think we're in a dangerous situation. As for the situation you were talking about, Trump, they're they're going they're going to ruin him, bankrupt him. But when they do that, they're they're doing they're signing their own death warrant because it's going to make it impossible for any legitimate business to do business in New York. That I mean, who who would expose themselves to that kind of uh, wastage? I mean that. That's just uh, beyond belief if they follow through with this, especially since uh, he paid the money back. I think he paid the money back on time. He did. And uh, so uh, I I don't understand how this thing got through, is is going through the courts in the first place. But uh, I do know that people with power will use it and some people use it recklessly, and apparently it's like the automobile – on every front, this is happening. It's like the UAW and automobile manufacturers, if they, if they jack the wages up too high uh, to make uh, what's left of the automobile inter, uh, uh, manufacturing in this country – uh, it'll make it impossible for them to do business profitably and – uh, if the if the businesses go under, if Ford, GM, and Stellantis aren't there, then uh, what do they need with the UAW? They don't need any UAW workers if there's no companies to employ them. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. You know, and and I mean, Red's got an answer. So, what does that look like? Here's my answer. You ready? Brutal cuts to the federal government, and no. I mean, you, you've got to completely into- the the supply secat. Well, uh, there's a there's a book out called Debt Bomb by a Harvard economist, and I never put much faith in a Harvard economist. But in Debt Bomb, he basically argues that the only out are brutal cuts to the federal government. Tens of thousands of government employees lose their job. Uh, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, completely and totally recreated in, in, in different formats. And the supply capacity of the economy is untouched. I mean, that, that's kind of the argument Jeff's making. You know, you cut taxes and you don't get economic growth or you don't get the revenue necessary to satisfy your debts. There's a, there's a debate about supply side and, you know, um, trickle-down economics and Keynesian economy. I mean, th- there's a lot of fair debates to be had about the best way to generate the fairest way. There would be a better way. The fairest way to generate revenue uh, and not inhibit growth in the private sector. But in Debt Bomb, um, that's a book written by this Harvard economist. I've read it. It's kind of interesting to me. I mean, he argues the only out eventually will be these brutal cuts. I'm talking about draconian cuts to the federal government. Um, One third of the workforce of the federal government lose their job. Um, Josh's generation works six, eight, ten years longer to receive 75% of the benefits of Medicare and Social Security, and the supply capacity of the economy is largely untouched. No tax increases at all. I mean, you know, it's just got to, it'll generate the revenue it generates, but because people were willing to make these, I mean, his word is brutal cuts to the federal government, there becomes a, um, you know, kind of a uh, an inversion of spending and uh, in revenue generation. Take a break. Back in just a few moments.
Takes Mondays to make Fridays, 843-661-0937. One of the greatest lines of the history of rock and roll. Still hayseed enough to say, look who's into big town. I told Red this morning, I don't know if you've seen, I don't know the situation with Toby Keith. But but over the weekend, I spent a lot of time watching football and racing and plundering around on um on the internet and saw a YouTube video with Chris. No, not Chris. Um, the guy that hates Trump. He's uh, <laughs> Bill Crystal. Bill Crystal and James Carville had an hour, eight minute podcast, and it's so interesting their perspective on uh, on politics. But I stumbled on Toby Keith, and I knew that Toby Keith was sick, but but he was at the People's Choice Awards. And he sang a song, I think he wrote it for Clint Eastwood or Willie Nelson or both. But it's about don't let the old man in the door. And he's talking, I, I mean, it's just, it's, 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 I, I don't have many songs that grab me, but but that grabbed me. I mean, it, the combination of the lyrics of the song and Toby Keith being um, not who he formerly was. I have no idea if his condition is terminal or not. Yeah, stomach cancer. Yeah, but but he was a big husky, you know, a healthy uh, kind of a man's man, and he's not, he doesn't look like that now. And, um, I mean, he says he's doing better. Now, what that means, I don't have any idea. But the combination of him in the shape he's in and the lyrics to the song and getting a little older, that thing hit me like a ton of bricks. In the song, it says, and I'll ask you this, how old would you be if you didn't know the day you were born? I mean, just kind of wow. stew on that for a second. How old would you be? If you didn't know the day you were born, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I don't know what possesses songwriters to come up with things like that, but I just thought, wow, okay, how old would you be if you didn't know the day you were born? I mean, if I, you know, I know my birthday, I know how old I'll be, but what if I didn't? I mean, if somebody said, how old are you? I don't know. I'd make up something. I'm mm-hmm. 44. How old but, do you feel? You know, 72. That's what he's saying. Yeah. And he says, don't let the old man in the door. Because as soon as you let that old man in the door, you'll, you'll sit on the couch and eat cornflakes and, and life will slip away from you. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Charles and Dylan. Good morning, Charles. Yes, sir. I got just a couple of things. Several years ago, there was a commercial on television, and I, I believe they banned it. I can't remember what it was about. But it was uh, a Chinese in a, a, like a seminar setting. And they said it was interpreted at the bottom that talking about the United States, but now they work for us. I was wondering if y'all remember that commercial. Anyway, and, uh, and another thing, you go out these Chinese and rest, uh, Japanese restaurants in every little town, but you don't never see the people that work there driving a Chevrolet, Ford, or Chrysler. They just don't. They They stick to their thing. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. David in the PD. Good morning, David. Hey, good morning, Big Bear Baker. Uh, <laughs> you know, hey, that was Mellencamp, man, I think. Small town, Jack and Diane days. Uh, but uh, did you guys watch Dave's Braves yesterday? I, I did. did not. I did. Yeah, wrapped yeah, up the season. Dave Baker. That's why they're Dave's Braves, Ken. Mm-mm. They watched them. No, Come when, on, man. When, I, when I cut the cord and became a streamer, my streaming service does not have the network that the Braves play. They on. make it hard to watch. If you're a Braves fan, I mean, you really have to try to, to find them to, to watch them if you're wanting to cut the cord. No doubt about it. Hey, well, I had to follow them just uh, with non visual internet yesterday, but uh, 
I tell you what, yesterday I was hoping Azuna would get that last bat, and that that don't make sense to anybody when Azuma came to that last bat. But, man, that guy hit 40 home runs and got 100 RBI. That's thinking, Ken, as an agent of a player, if somebody were to score 115 runs, 41 home runs, 110 RBI, and 294 average, wouldn't you think that was a pretty, pretty good player you could make some money off of him? Yeah, I demand. I mean, the market would, yeah. I mean, there, there's value in the market for that. Well, let me give you a statistic. That's the average of the first five Braves batters. That's their composite average. That's unbelievable. 115, I won't do it, say that again, but that's unbelievable how well that they have done this year. And when Ozuma, uh, he got that I mean, home run. I mean, he not only did they get 307 or home runs for a season, they did it 40 uh, home runs, three batters. That's only been done four times. And the Braves did it back in 73. So the sad part about it, it's not our Constitution and our Declaration of Independence. You know what? It means nothing now. But the season they had, now they got to face the Phillies and the Marlins, and I think they're five and six. They've lost five out of the last six games against those two teams. So it's kind of like our country. Uh, and that's sad. If you watch those Sunday morning shows yesterday, if you try to control deficit spending, guess what your title is? This is not as uh, a Democrat coming on. The media. I heard renegade Republican, hardline Republican, right-wing extremist Republican. You try to, to say anything about deficit spending, that's your category, isn't it? Uh, this bill they had 45 days later, these government workers going to have to face Thanksgiving. That's their narrative. And then they talked about student loans. And then people never ask about the price of college, price of government, you know, but the media, it just, it just frustrates me so much to even watch these shows, but you will get the true narrative and they let you know the, the, the mindset of government today. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, David. See, I understand. Um, I mean, if someone went to the university of Missouri journalism school and they graduated, got a job at a local paper, Next thing you know, they're a bit photogenic, so they get a job on television. Um, they're doing some of the radio. Bro- Ron Schmel, somebody just use him as an example. I mean, I, I have no idea what his career path is. I don't know where he's been. I don't know where he wants to go. I would imagine he wants to host a 30-minute show on Fox News or CNN. I mean, that's kind of the, the crescendo. Um, or be a, a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post. The, the, the issue is how few people understand economic activity. I mean, that, that really is the issue. I'm not saying, when I ran for lieutenant governor, Gresham Barrett ran for governor. Gresham and Henry McMaster, at one time in our race, was the preeminent favorites. This is before Nikki caught fire and Sarah Palin endorsed. Um, so, so Gresham and Henry and Andre and Nikki and myself and the three other candidates in the Republican primary for lieutenant governor, Tim Scott being one, uh, we showed up at the same venue night after night after night after night, and we gave speeches. And it was an eight-minute version or, you know, an 18-minute version or a, a four-minute version, whatever. And then you took a little Q&A. And I remember thinking to myself how few understood business fundamentals, the principles of business. 
And it really goes back to the speech. I've told you guys this story before. I went to Greenville. I mean, that's the, that's the most fertile ground for a Republican in South Carolina. I mean, if you go to Greenville, you better have your A game. Because, I mean, you're in a Republican primary. That's all the, where all the Republicans are. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're business interested. They're, they're, they're a very spiritual bunch. You know, there's a lot of Bob Jones influence in the Republican Party in that part of the state. Very conservative, very religious conservative in the upstate. Um, east of 95, very, very Republican, but it's more Giuliani Republican, far less Bible Belt influenced uh, than the upstate. But I've told you the story. I mean, I, I really prepared one day because first time I'm going to Greenville. I mean, I got to prove myself. I'm nobody from nowhere. I, I, I speak at the first Tuesday club at the, at the Greenville Country Club, and there's 150 Republican activists and operatives and, and you know, opinion leaders in that room. And I really uh, dressed it up. I mean, I talked about EBITDA and ROI and margins and, you know, the government spending. And, I mean, I just really went on and on and on about how much I knew uh, you know, about the business community. And I get in my car to go home and Haley calls me and says, that was the dumbest speech you've ever given. I said, what do you mean the dumbest speech I've ever given? Did you not understand? I mean, your political consultant, what do you know about the, the serious world of business and finance? And he says, what did anybody in that room know about it? Nobody in that room runs a business. Nobody in that room understands EBITDA. I mean, they think that's ET's cousin. Who knows what EBITDA is? And you stop doing that. Speak to meet people where they where they are. If you, if you go to meet, you know, um, a group of bankers or business guys in, a, in a, an intimate setting, yeah. I mean, show off a bit that you do know some of the, the terminologies and realities. So you're asking people who, by and large, have no formal business training. Uh, maybe they've got some education, but they have no business training. You're asking them to run the biggest business on the planet. And, and really and truly, I mean, they're, they're being checked by bureaucrats. Why, why do you expect any different? I mean, they, why would you expect bureaucrats and elected officials who, by and large, don't have a lot of business experience, why do you expect them to run the business as the business um, should be run? And there's no way I would ever argue that, you know, you shouldn't be able to run for office unless you run a business. I mean, that, that's absurd. You can't say that because a lot of businesses fail. A lot of business people. I mean, I've made some big mistakes in my life, tremendous mistakes, and I've had to answer to those mistakes. Um, I mean, it's wins and losses in business. You you know, you you try to win more than you lose, but nobody in business, you know, makes money every minute of every day. I mean, there are struggles in the private sector, and, and in retrospect, you look back and say, wow, shouldn't have done that. Should have done this. Should have done that much of that. Should have done less of less of this. I mean, that's always, but there's a, there's a, there's a, a reward for performance and a price for non-performance, right? I mean, that, that's the way, I mean, that, that's what the capital markets do. That's what the free market does. I mean, it rewards good decisions and, and profitability, and it, you know, punishes to the point of termination at some point in time those who don't perform. And I just wish we could add some ingredient of that into the way we run, we run our government. And we don't. We just absolutely, what is the price? I mean, if we believe Congress sucks at appropriating, why does 96% get reelected? I mean, really and truly, I mean, ask yourself that. I mean, if the public believes that the, the United States Congress does a lousy job in spending our money, why do voters all over this country and every state in America continue to send to Washington the exact same people 
and expect something different to happen. And their approval ratings, what, 14%? 14%, 94% get reelected. Figure that out. Yeah, I mean, you can't. You can't. But but it's a, it's a complicated mess it is what it is. Take a break. Back in just a few moments. Damn sure ain't my world. If it was my world, the game calls would have played better Saturday night. Chase Elliott would have won the race yesterday. I can promise you it was not my world. I'm just doing the best I can to get to the end of this day and to the beginning of the next. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. If you were in control, things would be much different, well, much better you, if, for all of us. If I were in control, the, the left tackle wouldn't have been left on his own against an all-SEC defensive end all night long. Um, I had to go to church twice yesterday. And <laughs> – Wash my mouth out with soap three times. <laughs> I bet. After all the profanities I yelled at the the um the never listening television <laughs> bears the brunt of my rage on college football Saturdays when I'm not at a game. Let's go to the phone. Nick in Lexington. Good morning, Nick. I'm with you. I thought Bosa was on that corner the way he kept sacking everybody. Well, if you put a true freshman, I said this morning, Nick, I mean, and I'm not questioning, well, I guess I am, and I think it, you, you're fair. You make a couple of million dollars a year deserve to be questioned, and I'm not talking about Shane, the head coach, but the, the offensive coordinator had to see that that true freshman didn't have a chance against that all-conference defensive end, and you got to chip him with a tight end or an H-back just to give him a fighting chance. It may not be what you want to do, but, but under those circumstances, you're forced to adjust. It does take one less threat, you know, as a receiver, but it keeps your quarterback from running for his life. I'm with you. I talked about chipping, and you thought I was going to eat some <laughs> young potatoes. Anyway, Ken, you know, I think my question to you is, first of all, how many people do you think listen to talk radio, political talk radio on both sides? I mean, the percentage of our population, 10%? Yeah, that would be a high. I don't. I don't. I doubt ten percent. I would, would say. Yeah, I'd say five oh, or six percent, maybe. If if Rush was the gold standard, you, he used to claim twenty million listeners a week. Twenty million out of three hundred thirty million people. So oh. you know, six or seven percent. And all I can think about is my dad saying about the problem with our criminal justice system is we rely on twelve people who can't who aren't smart enough to get out of jury duty. <laughs> yeah. And, and I kind of think, I mean, the problem is nobody's going to vote. Everybody votes their pocketbook or what's best for them, and we got hard decisions to make. But, Nick, to your point, how many Americans know the hard decisions that lie ahead? I mean, I think that's what you're saying, very few. Right. I mean, listen, I, I can come up with, I mean, there's puzzles out there. I'm a big believer the solution to the immigration problem would help us with Social Security, and that is we need to give them a big, like, 25000 I told you this before, a $25,000 ticket, and it's 5000 a year for five years, and it goes straight to Social Security or something like that. And then... What we really have is a mortgage, and we need to start selling off some of our assets. We need to move the Department of Education to Omaha, sell all that real estate in D.C. or whatever, and just start making smart choices. But the problem is is people are voting themselves benefits, and maybe that's just the lifespan of a democracy. You know, and all the smart people say the, the best form of government is a good king. Because good kings make good decisions and hard decisions. And I don't disagree with that. I mean, a benevolent dictator 
is the soundest form of government in the world until his son is not benevolent, you know, and he's Great. driven by greed or, or something other than doing right by, by the people. The only point I try to illustrate, and, I, and I'm, you've listened long enough, I am totally accepting of the fact that I don't have all the answers. But we better start having debates, serious debates, about some of these issues that are going to have monumental and profound effects on all of our lives. I'll give you an example. As an American, I'm concerned about our reading proficiency score. But, but I know everybody I love can read proficiently, so I can kind of check out of that debate. I mean, I, I do believe that America is going to be better off if people could proficiently read. But, but you know, people that I care about and, and, and love and, and will do anything for, I mean, they're all proficient. But, but the debt is something that nobody can get out of its way. Once the debt bomb explodes, once the debt bubble bursts, everybody, construction companies, truck body manufacturers, restaurants, um, entitlement benefit receivers, everybody's going to be dramatically impacted the other side of whenever this happens. That's my point. Your life isn't going to be adversely or positively affected if reading proficiency scores decline by 20% or go down by 20%. But once the debt bubble burst, everybody with skin in the game are going to be dramatically affected. That, that's what I don't understand. We know that, but so little is being done in regards to it. Uh, yeah, but you can't win on that message. I mean, I mean the, the reality of it, the fact is, the only people that are going to are going to vote for somebody who tackle that issue are six percent of the people that listen to it. That's the best shot you got. Six percent that are kind of aware. I don't disagree. I mean, you know, I mean, and so I mean, it's how do you? I, I mean, I, I get it. I mean, you're yelling to the trees, like in the forest. They might try to listen, but they don't vote either. Well, a lot of people will accuse talk radio now that you're talking about, and Rev and I have these conversations, because we know what our numbers are. I mean, we got data to show that we've gone we've gone at a good audience in the mornings. But but a lot of people believe we traffic in fear mongers. You know, we try to stir up conversations, and we try to, you know, inspire people to be difficult and, and non-obedient. And, and I, I'm not doing that. I mean, I, I don't try to mislead anybody about anything. I just think there are truths out there that, that we must discuss and you can do what you choose to do with it. But, but I've never tried to, well, I mean, I have tried to provoke because I think that's part of the entertainment that we're in, but I've never intentionally misled anybody about a subject we talk about on the radio. If I say something over these airways, I believe it's important enough to try and create a conversation and you guys are willing to kind of go there. And I appreciate it more than, you know, well, but but I'm my point is is only you know I had a guy tell me you know he's 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 gonna have to relist his house. This was ten years ago, all right. And he said that the houses beside him were selling for one thirty, and he listed at one fifty. And I asked him why did he list at one fifty? You know what he said. Because the listing agent said she could get it. And it's just people just don't think. You understand what I'm saying? Sure, I do. Every house beside him sold for 130 looked just like his, 
maybe a different color siding, and he thought he was going to get 150 which tells you how long ago that was. But the point <laughs> is, is people just hear what they want to hear and make decisions on what they think is going to be, you know, all sunshine and rainbows, I feel like. Totally agree. Thank so, you, Nick. But we so, got we got to take a break, and I didn't want to belabor or belabor that point. But um, the 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 argument is, and this is where I mean, maybe I do understand this a little bit better. I mean, I'm sure I understand it a little bit better than most because it's something I'm required to do. I mean, I'm not going to come on the air and appear to know nothing of what I'm talking about. Um, I mean, Jeff and I have genuine disagreements. Uh, some of our, you know, agreeable listeners and I have genuine disagreements. Um, I, I, and maybe, maybe I make too much of the debt because I've watched so many businessmen or women make mistakes regarding debt. I've made a lot of mistakes myself uh, about borrowing money and how much money we can service and can we wait a year? Is the market going to turn in a year and a half? M- maybe I think a lot of my opinion because of these experiences I bring to the table. Um, but these are the, the all of these experiences are in a world where accountability was it, it was it was demanded. I mean, there there's no way to escape the reality of you know. I mean, I, I borrow money to the bank. I can't pay the bank back. What do I do? Call the bank. Say, well, call the Fed. You know, call call the Fed. They'll take care of it. I'm sorry, made a mistake. Call the Fed. They'll pay it off. China will buy that. No, I mean, I, I've lived in a world where it demanded accountability, and 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 I've not always been accountable. I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. But you learn. I mean, there, there's a kind of a saying in my world: experience is ed, uh, education is expensive. <laughs> I mean, you you learn some of these things um, the hard way. I tell my kids all the time. I've told Josh this. I think in the last week or two, Josh, I'm no smarter than you are. I've just seen a lot more sunrises and sunsets, and you learn things seeing a lot more of those sunrises and sunsets. Take a break. Back in a few moments. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. You know, there's a fair debate about whether we are, and I'm talking about we as a business, as an industry. I mean, I, I am a small part of the world that is known as talk radio, conservative media. Um, you know, Tucker is divisive, and he's a fear monger and a hate monger. And you know how all those radio show guys are. Remember what Juan Williams said a couple of years back about the, um, you know, the reaction to Trump doing this is X. And then Juan Williams famously said on Sunday morning Fox, yeah, I mean, them radio boys ain't got to work yet. <laughs> just <laughs> you know, wait. Wait yeah, till just, Monday. Let, let that radio, let that, let those radio boys get to work. I, I consider that a compliment because what Juan was saying was, yeah, they, they'll paint another picture. I mean, you're right. Since Trump did that Friday, the mainstream media has painted a picture a certain way. But don't you, don't you think for a second that once those radio show boys get back to work, they're going to kind of um, dispute the, um, the colors of the picture and the order of the painting. I don't have any idea if we're divisive. I don't have any idea if we create fear or anger or animus. I, I don't know. I, I, it doesn't interest me. Doesn't doesn't concern me. I am so uninterested in that. You know, when when I sit behind this microphone, okay, there's a divisive meter, and there's a fear mongering meter, and, and there's a you know a ratings meter. None of that matters to me. N- none of that. There are subjects worthy of discussing, and we're going to have a discussion with. Nick says 6% of Americans. He's probably close. He's probably close. I mean, it's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of that. Um, I mean, it would be, what, what, what does Fox News have? Um, 5 million viewers? Nah, that means 325 million people aren't watching Fox News. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but you got kids and 
you know, people to just check out Seinfeld watchers and whatnot. But, but I think we're a part of the debate that is essential. I mean, I, I do believe that, that one thing we do, and, and I go back to my days of, of being non-political. As a younger person working in a family business, hearing my dad, I mean, my dad was my North Star. My, my dad was the person who uh, obviously had the largest male influence in my life. He was a self-made business guy. Um, you can imagine most self-made business men in country towns with no stoplight, probably not real liberal. <laughs> you know, I don't know if my dad ever said I'm more conservative than liberal, but, but I, I know his notions and his perspectives and, and they were not politically motivated. They were just things he believed in fundamentally believed in a way of life and a, a systematic way of doing things and what the priorities should be or should not be. Um, and that upbringing obviously led me to a certain place, but, but I remember, uh, in our, in our, well, I ended up with five sixty by 120 buildings. And I can remember, uh, you know, this area over here was a hydraulic shop and then the fab shop and then the paint shop and had some office space here. And I, I remember that about, you know, 10 radios hanging on clothes hangers, you know, just hanging on the wall, radios playing country music over here and classic rock over, over the damn radio down. I mean, it's, you know, you got to, you know, we want to listen to our country, and you got that Eagles playing over there, and I don't want to hear that hippie stuff. I mean, turn that down. <laughs> there wouldn't be stuff in that building. It'd be something else. Right. Um, but we're not satellite radio here. I think you know the point. Uh, I get uh, it. yep. It's one of the good old boys' go-to words. Um, <laughs> right. so, so anyway, in, in this building, yeah, in this building, you've got you know country music, but but there were three or four of those guys who listened to Limbaugh every day. Turn that hippie stuff down. I'm listening to this guy over here saving the world. And, and I remember, because nobody told me, nobody reinforced, people of authority, Peter Jennings, Dan Rather, I mean, I'm talking about all these media personalities, they, they basically tried to convince me that my dad didn't know what he's talking about. He was a hayseed. I mean, he didn't know any better. Had he been educated, he would have had these other evolved views and enlightened views. And Limbaugh on that wall convinced me as a young non-political person that my dad wasn't crazy. Because he was saying things very similar to what my dad taught me in bringing my brother and I up. My brother's 17 years my junior. So, you know. 17 months. Uh, 17 months. I'm sorry, 17 months my junior. Um, and that was the effect or impact talk radio had on me. There's this radio over here. And I can remember scheduling work to be near that radio. You know, I got to do this job, so let's park this truck over here. Because I've heard the Eagles and I've heard Merle Haggard. I want to hear some. I want to hear some Rush Limbaugh, and and it was it was refreshing and encouraging, and um and he made a mark. I mean, there's no doubt about it. There are there are great debates in America today about the impact of Rush Limbaugh, good, bad, indifferent. I, I think he was a force for enlightenment, um, a force for encouragement. Don't crawl in a hole because you believe something counter to the mainstream narrative. Um, don't lock yourself in a closet because you believe. Um, in, in things that are, uh, what, what do I say, outdated or perceived to be somewhat somewhat outdated. So that's, you know, what what is the responsibility of talk radio? I, I don't know. I, I don't think about it. I mean, I really and truly don't think about it. I am unbelievably grateful that when they threw me out of public office, this opportunity was afforded to me. That, that's all I know. Rev, I, and another man, Harold Miller, met at a Groucho's restaurant. <laughs> and they, and they asked me to consider doing this. And I said, guys, I'll never get it. I said, guys, 
I ain't stopped going to church, but I'm not going to sit on the front row for a while. I'd kind of like to sit on the back row. You know, I've gone through a political crap storm. That word again, and um, <laughs> right. and and I'd rather very not, versatile word. <laughs> I'd rather not. Probably the most versatile word in the English language. Probably so. It, it means about a thousand different things uh, when used about a thousand different ways. But but you know we've we, we came on the air and you guys started listening, and then you guys started calling, and you guys have been. I mean, I, I'll, I'll level with you. you. You you are as big an influencer on this show as as Rev or Josh or I. Uh, I guess the biggest influencers probably <laughs> real clear politics. I mean, I check it 10 times a day to make sure I'm not missing a story. Politico, the hill.com wall street journal. Um, but I'm proud of what we've done. I mean, I, you know, it, it's not to the degree Limbaugh has very few have achieved um, that sort of success, but I'm proud that we inspire conversations with people who are trying to figure it out. I've never heard anybody call in and say, well, I know exactly the right answers to all these problems facing America. I know exactly what we need to do. Well, there's Jeff. Um, but but most <laughs> of us, <laughs> I meant that as a friendly jab, mm-hmm. but most of us are just doing uh, the best we can. You're a part of my day. I'm a part of yours. And we're trying to get to the other side um, together and figure out s- some of the fate future of, of our nation. I look at Josh a lot. And, and it matters to me that Josh is of a – younger generation. My kids, um, Josh is younger than my two boys, older than my daughter. And when I see Josh, I see my three kids. And am I fighting the good fight on their behalf? Well, I mean, it, it, I'd like to think so. Am I trying to talk about subjects and issues that need to be addressed so their lives can be lived, you know, reaching their full potential and success? I'd like to think so. But, but, how much does talk radio play in making America a better place? Yeah, I, I guess it depends on what side of the political aisle you sit. Um, James Carville thinks we're mean and nasty. But James Carville sees the world in a very different way uh, than I do. How many people hated Rush Limbaugh? I mean, just hated, Half despised of his him. listeners. Right. A third of his <laughs> listeners right. want him off the air. But they, we, we, I'll tell this quick story, Josh, and then we'll take a break. Before you got here, Rev get an email. And it, it would, uh, this guy's the lousiest guy in the history of radio. His, his language is, I mean, he doesn't know what he's talking about. You can't half understand him. He's got this rural accent and dialect, and I'll never, I mean, until you guys get this guy off the radio, I'll never listen again. Two days later, an email comes. He's a moron. I mean, did you hear what he said this morning about taxes? He's a moron. I'll never listen again. Three days later, Rev gets an email. My God, did you hear what he said about abortion and marriage? <laughs> I mean, I'll never listen to that guy ever again. He's illiterate. He's as country as can be. He doesn't belong over the airwaves. A week later, Rev gets an email. That's it. I mean, I'm done. Mm. I, I will never <laughs> listen again because he wants, I mean, he wants to, the border to be secure. He wants to stop those people from attaining their maximum potential. And that's when we knew. <laughs> we knew to some degree we had become somewhat successful still listening aren't you well, i think he probably right. is you may get an email today Rev, <laughs> from the um the listener who said 10 years ago he'll never listen again you remember or you know what i remember from that lunch at groucho's and we were talking about putting the show on um together seeing if you were interested in doing it um almost everybody who walked in the door saw you sitting there in the booth and stopped by shook your hand and gave you words of encouragement saying hey man they did you dirty in columbia we got your back so they yeah. did, and um, and I appreciate that. Yeah, but that's why I don't go to public. That's why I don't go. Out and, 
if you, Mike Rickenbaugh say he loves to bump into people at the grocery store, if you see me, let me be. <laughs> oh, listen to me. I'm kidding. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Time for our Takes Mondays to Make Fridays trivia question brought to you by our good friends at Pepsi of Florence every Monday and Friday. Uh, you know, we celebrate with them and their support of this, uh, this radio show. We're talking about important media figures. Limbaugh was obviously an important media figure. Some of the country loved him. Some of the country despised him. Most of the country said, who? <laughs> okay, that guy that's got a lot of listeners, I just not happen to be uh, one of those. Here's the question. You ready? 843-661-0937. Where did Rush Limbaugh graduate college? 843-661-0937 is the number. Once again, thanks to our good friends at Pepsi of Florence for kind of digging in with us here uh, 20 hours a week. Is there a call on the phone? Hi, you are on. You know the answer? Uh, he didn't go to college. You are right. There you go. He did not have a college degree. I think he went a semester at Southeast Missouri State University, but dropped out and pursued um, other endeavors that ended up being fairly lucrative. Who is this and where are you calling from? Hey, this is BT. Oh, BT. Um Good hearing from you. Hadn't heard from BT in a while. 843. Well, I mean, don't give the number because we've already got a winner, right? Yep. We'll get you back to Josh. Josh will get you information. Um, I mean, according to his mother, I read this in something, he flunked everything. <laughs> <laughs> and, and 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 he was, I told Rev during the break, Limbaugh was, um, I mean, he said this later in life, that a lot of his life was geared toward um, gaining his father's approval. He really held his dad in high esteem I mean, he said the reason he went to college was his, you know, to kind of make his mom and dad believe that he tried to do um, the legitimate thing. I think his brother, David Limbaugh, is an accomplished author and, and highly educated. His father was a Missouri prosecutor and then a judge and then some sort of um, special commissioner. And if I'm not mistaken, his grandfather might have been in the Missouri House of Representatives. So he was a bit pedigreed, um, mm -hmm. just didn't choose to follow the formal educational route you got to believe his mom and dad um said son don't do that i mean you'll, you'll be broke the rest of your life <laughs> you know don't do that just go to college get your degree your brother david's a lawyer he can help you out of the business world now nah, i want to be in radio and he start out as a rock and roll yeah, dj i right? think he did and, yeah. and did some play-by-play -play in sports yeah i think he had a job with the kansas city royals if i'm not mistaken the, at the one closest, point in time the closest i ever got to rush never met him but I was doing some work at radio stations installing computer systems, and I went to Cape Girardeau, Missouri. Uh, where Hometown. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and we went into the radio station, and we were talking to the engineers about the new systems we're going to put on. And on day one, they said, all right, going to let you know something. Mama Limbaugh listens to her boy on this radio station. Don't blank it up. Mm. They gave us a warning. And that would have been in the early days. Yeah, that would have been about 97, somewhere so, there. So, so he, he was, established himself yeah. as a loud voice of conservative yeah. He was very uh, successful, but that was the local station that his mom listened to listened to him on. Well, I mean, you, you know, football's a game where people get injured, and you worry about can this kid, probably Juice Wells, we're Gamecocks, you and I are Gamecocks. When's Juice coming back? I mean, the Gamecocks are better with Juice out there. The Trump phenomenon would have been much more effective had Rush Limbaugh been on the airways three hours every day explaining some of the ins and outs, some of the do's and don'ts. Um, you know, love him, hate him. He was a remarkable media personality. Enjoy your day. Thanks to Pepsi of Florence. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.